0: Welcome to Vector! Three, two, one, action. Hey everyone, this is Peter Gregorio. Welcome to the Vector interview podcast. Each episode focuses on a different artist. We meet in person and have an in-depth discussion about life, art, and the concepts behind their work. I'm an artist, I'm based in Brooklyn, and I'm the director of Vector Productions, which publishes the international artist zine Vector, and hosts different art-related events, exhibitions, and performances around the world. Today's episode is with the American artist and filmmaker Leslie Thornton. Thornton has produced an influential body of work, and is recognized as a pioneer of contemporary media, working with film, video, photography, and installation over the last five decades. Retrospectives of her work have been held at the Museum of Modern Art and the Anthology Film Archives in New York. Her work has been exhibited in Documenta, MoMA PS1, the Center Pompidou, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. Her projects have been screened in film festivals in New York, Oberhausen, and Rotterdam. In 2018, she was the first recipient in company with artist James Richards, of a new CERN Artists in Residency program, sponsored by the Center of Contemporary Art in Geneva. She is currently having a Mm solo exhibition called Begin Again Again at the MIT List Visual Arts Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The show is up until February 13th. It is a retrospective of projects spanning her timeline and features a new two-channel video work called Hemlock that was commissioned by the List Art Center. If you're in Cambridge, go check out the exhibition. I will put a link in the show notes leslie thornton remixes archival materials text found footage and soundtracks into new compositions that explore themes of language childhood nuclear war technology ethnography and the narrative structure itself her work is projected metadata of the species as a whole in her own words she describes the content as a collection of illogical things mispronunciations Peculiar combinations of sound and image that are somehow startling, excessive beauty. Working with duration that seems inappropriate, the viewer has to deal with it. It stimulates the mind to cope with boredom. I first met Leslie around five years ago. I was renting a large factory space in the Bronx with a couple of artists and we carved out some studios to rent out and Leslie and her partner rented one of the spaces and set up her studio there for a while. hung out a lot and talked, had long conversations and got to know each other. Uh, At the time I was working on Vector issue 8 in New York and I asked if she would be one of the contributing artists so she gave me a bunch of still images that came from her video called So So Much. Uh, We wound up screening the video when we did the launch of the Whitney Museum. And then later I wound up putting the video in an exhibition I was curating in Munich. I was asked to um, co-curate the Munich Biennial and invite 10 American artists into the exhibition, and she was one of the artists I chose. I really wanted to show that video. It was a really good feeling to, to put her work in it. This discussion was recorded at her home in Astoria, Queens in November 2021. Welcome, Leslie Thornton.
1: I'm Leslie Thornton, and I am with Peter in my living room in Astoria, looking south out of windows that are 12 feet by 12 feet.
0: They're nice windows. They're right really across n- from the park.
1: Right next to the Harlem, where the Harlem River comes into the East River and the East River is salt water. It's not a river, it's an estuary oh, really? with fierce tides every day in and out, very dangerous. Just south of us is Hell's Gate, okay. so the cross currents coming in from the Harlem River off the Hudson and then the Atlantic in and out around the end of Long Island. Many people have died.
0: We, um, my family had a house in Seagate,
1: uh-huh.
0: right on the water, and so, you know, I grew up looking out at that. Yeah, at all the big barges go by and all that. It's just so familiar. It's to me. so good to live by yeah. water. I like it too.
1: It was always my dream, and here I am.
0: I know. When I'm leaving. <laughs> but you're leaving. <laughs>
1: But we're going to live near an enormous dam. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the Croton Reservoir. That's right at the end of the property.
0: I'll probably ask you some questions in the beginning just Mm -hmm. to get it moving along. Sure. Until we forget about all this equipment. I'm not paying attention. It takes me a little while. The only
1: thing I'm thinking about is whether
0: to open my umbrella
1: to block the sun that's coming in through the big windows in my house. You can do it. I think I'll open my umbrella for a little bit so
0: it's been a while i haven't seen you in a couple years right but like somehow we communicate here and there now so i feel like
1: yeah there's a connection
0: there's a connection i don't know why i don't either it's just one of those things
1: it was pretty immediate Um, i think
0: it, it was yeah it's like a knowing
1: yeah
0: and uh and i always trust that now yeah and it's rare yeah and i guess i wanted to talk to you you had that show at MIT. I haven't seen that many shows in the last year. And it was nice to go out and go somewhere and and to see all your work at once.
1: It was really good for me that yeah. you came and that I could see you right at the beginning Yeah, and talk for a while. And and it's the first art thing I've been to, and it was mine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I figured, why don't we just start with that and then or we'll work backwards, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> how did, it's like a, a, it's almost like a whole timeline of all your works It's a ver- you know? It's
1: a very particular timeline yeah. that the curator, Natalie Bell, put together. It's not necessarily what I would Yeah. choose. I did fight it for a while. In the end, I think she was on. It, it tells a story.
0: That's what she saw. Tell me about the things you're interested in about the whole experience of showing that at MIT.
1: Initially she, she said uh, that she thought the thread would be around notions of war. I would say how the idea of war would have changed. I do think we're in war. We're in war. That's what we're in now. It's a global war. It's based on information and, not, and money. It's not so much about death, though <laughs> that's part of it too. But it's not, it's so sprawling. And, and it's funny because I thought a long time ago, and I did write in a journal a long time ago, the next door will be in language. And it's, there's a way in which that's the case. See, I'm older than you, so I a uh, big moment kind of defining awareness for somebody in my generation, and for me certainly especially, was the fact that we were moving towards the millennium. When I did the math and realized there was a good chance I'd be alive (laughs) for the millennium, I couldn't believe it. Um, But in the 80s, there were people writing who would be called futurologists. A lot of it was pretty, is wacky but predictive stuff and the one name I remember is Faith Popcorn.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, w- I wonder if she's in Google. She has to be but this is pre- <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: pre-Google and so a number of the things she spoke about did end up being the case. Why did I go there? So why am I going that direction? It, it relate know. Well it does relate to Peggy and Fred very much. And then that relates to earlier work, and, and this whole family mythos that I started going along with, having it out there more, as being a formative personal history.
0: Um, Do you mean the works that you showed about the family? Is well, well, you?
1: I mean, I mean, growing up in the Cold War in the yeah. defense family. I mean, in the military industrial. Where does the money come from? Where does Dad go to work? And what does he do? He doesn't make bombs. But he was in the atomic world, a nuclear world.
0: He was a physicist, right? For his life.
1: There. He was trained. His degree was in physics, but he was, he was managing a big, after the atom bomb <laughs> project, <laughs> not so it's horrible to call it a project, but yes, after that, after the war, he, I don't know what he did in Oak Ridge, because that's where he went next. And I, next, and I was born there. But he was in charge then, in my childhood, of a nuclear-powered airplane project. And so for my childhood, that's what he went to work for. He made a good, wonderful place for children. He had to drive a long way, but we lived out in the countryside, and we had a lake and creeks, and we were surrounded by farms. And then he went to work with robotic stuff developing, robotic handling of nuclear materials, so their jet engine that was nuclear powered could be fixed every time it flew, and it was uh, a long-term project that went off and on, depending on what Russia was doing really, and then it was cancelled in 1961 by Kennedy. I didn't know why my dad hated Kennedy so much, so Mm, I only actually realized...
0: (laughs) Job. <laughs> he did,
1: he canceled his job as part of uh, a preparation for negotiations with the Russians with, with Khrushchev for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So Americans were looking around for the projects they could put to sleep uh, as part of that negotiation. So this was this was one of the, the plane flew once. There's a lot of curiosity about that plane and whether it ever actually existed, and it did, and it did fly once and it dropped a ton of radioactivity and then this past summer I learned it stopped and the radioactivity was a definite problem and I do remember as a kid thinking well what can you do it just can go fly and fly and fly forever so who's going to be in that plane well the president a couple people after a nuclear war and how are they going to eat that's the thing I kept thinking
0: how would they eat, those people? Yeah, I I mean, I I was young and during like the height of the Cold War, and yeah. I, I remember that feeling of <laughs> at any moment. Yeah. And also all those books. I, I'm a science fiction reader. Yeah. So many books about post-nuclear war. My father was an architect in the Air Force, and he oh. was top secret because he designed all, all the bases. Oh, okay. For the nuclear. Really. Not the nuclear planes, but nuclear stuff. Uh, um, the, the, the the runways and the bases for where, like in Al, he was in Alaska. He and was where in the Europe. missiles were. Not the missiles, the planes. Was it the, B2 or the B two bombers? Oh,
1: okay, yeah, the B two bombers. That would
0: drop them. The bombs, so right? Yes. He knew where all the bases were because he designed them. Yeah. So he's <laughs> one of the architects. He was in Germany. He huh. was in. France, and he was in Alaska.
1: Have you noticed? It's it's surprising if if this topic comes up of family involved in this kind of history at all. How many other people you run into had also a connection?
0: And he was just an architect; like he didn't really do anything, but yet he knew where everything was. So (laughs) everything was secret. And so yeah. So
1: one thing I was going to sidestepping. I'm the mistress of digression in my work and my speech so I'll probably forget why I started a sentence more than once but one thing I was going to mention some time I'll say now when you live in a regular nuclear family I mean the other notion of nuclear family like a centered family and anybody's involved in top-secret work. Language changes even at home in the most ordinary context. So I was speaking to a friend fairly recently who's a linguist, and I said something about how the four kids in my family were the shy kids who were so shy that I feel like you wouldn't want to be in the room with any of us because it was painful. And I've met people like that as I was teaching. I would see that sometimes. And I have a brother who's still completely within that enclosure. And she said, well, I'm probably part of the factor in, in that being different from the whole rest of your huge family, all of your cousins that you've told me about and so forth, is that your dad was doing stuff he couldn't, he just couldn't talk at all about how he spent all day and all night because he also brought the work home. He was just never not working. And it restricts natural speech as well. So he was a good security risk, I figure. But it affected my work. It affected my work in this way, a big way, in a personal way, is that when you're that shy, language is almost like it's outside of you it doesn't it's not when you're with friends and you're out in the backyard playing you're just it's okay it's fine but uh, at school or with strangers it's like that's that the enemy speech um is this borderline and it's hard to cross i would because i loved school but it would be in the last minute or two of a class that I'd finally say what I was needed to say. And it was not until my 30s that I started going out of it. But I think because I watched speech happening around me, I think I helped set up what I ended up doing. So I was very
0: observant. Yeah, I mean... I imagine there's a carefulness.
1: Like, well, it seemed like, well, the, what, I, what was strange was I I felt that I was conscious of a factor of artifice in language. So I recall when my mom started to say things like, "less," you should say thank you. I thought, why, that is not, that is not essential. I mean, when do they tell you that? You're four or five? I think that's like an invention. I didn't have a good word for it, but that's, it has nothing to do with what you need to do, I thought, to say thank you. So that's the only example I can remember. But I also, well, there's one other thing, and I did make a piece, and I never showed it to anyone, and I don't even know where it is, but it's, it's called The Word for Melancholy because I do remember when I was a little older hearing that word and hearing what it referred to and thinking, okay, I don't know, these 15 different things in my being, they all come together under that one word, melancholy. Well, that's how it works. So, okay, yes, I'm melancholy, it's easier to say that than I feel this, I think this, I saw that.
0: Yeah. It's like a summarizes all well, yeah, these different Well, yeah, it was an facets. economy
1: of language.
0: Yeah.
1: Because to say, so, so my own theory of language, basically, is that what well, it carves its narrative path. But it, the idea I had of hell, for Peggy and Fred in Hell, that word hell, partly that was language. And I thought of hell. As it had nothing to do with you know, a Christian notion or any other cultural notion of hell. Other countries, other other cultures, it, it had to do with I just thought of it as having to do with a paradox. So, so language would be a paradox in that to say something, you had to not say everything. <laughs> that To not say everything you had to have words and And you had to have structure for communication in speech or in writing and it forms perception after the moment you're born, it all starts. When I was at MIT a long, long time ago as a student for a while, there was a documentary film program there in the uh, 70s and uh, a cinema verite doc program mm. Richard Leacock was teaching. We had been filming a couple with a young baby for the for the piece called All Right You Guys. That is in this current exhibition. Yeah, I saw the piece. Yeah. So, over the course of filming, some of that footage has the baby when she was about a month old, and then we filmed for a few months, so maybe we covered Three or four months of her early childhood, maybe a little more. But you used to edit on these machines, Steenbeck's on film, and you'd you'd go forward and backwards all the time. You run forwards, but you then rewind, run forwards. When we listened to the crying of the one-month-old infant, it sounded exactly the same, forward and reversed, exactly. Huh. Then. A few months later, it did not sound the same backwards. It didn't, it started to have a direction. One day we were editing and uh, we each had our own room but the noise would spill. And uh, a woman came and knocked on our door and she said, what are are you doing? What are you doing with the crying? So explained, we were working on a film and, and she said, well that's an area I'm doing research in I don't remember how she said it, but basically she was aware or working somehow with this directionality in crying, so pre, way pre-vocal, like <laughs> practically not even conscious, and that was amazing. All of that yeah, was amazing. I never really
0: thought about that. I, you brought up so many things, mm, yeah. but I don't want to cut you off. Oh, so. no,
1: do. Go ahead. Please. Um,
0: so language, obviously we learn language. yeah pretty early on yeah absorb it and we're talking about words right yeah and structure and structure well first thing you brought up that at some point we learn a direction and there's a point where we don't have a direction and somehow evidently somehow time maybe that's like a construct that we learn through language that time has a direction that's what I was thinking about Uh maybe it doesn't first thing but we learn it through our learning. And the other thing was I think was thinking about, we work visually, and I wonder if there's a limit to how we can communicate beyond just, like, the word, you know? Oh, for sure. Because you're working with video and sound, and, you know what I mean? And we're trying to convey these things that we don't even quite understand. It's almost like a method of trying to grok the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, talk about something. So you just brought up a number of interesting
1: okay. angles on this. So, one is the possibility of the sense a sense of time, and how that might relate to language. So, I think in some scientific realms, the idea of time is there's no time, and this path we cut through our lives that includes speaking and communication and being around others and expressing ourselves always it feels like it's a moving forward, right? It can't move back it happens in the present so if it's true that only there's only a present, or it could be that our sense of past and future which occurs past and memory future in a kind of predictive expectation I suppose yeah, so yeah language could have a lot to do with sense of there being time, our regular kind of human and world sense, time. So that was, I thought I had in response to what you were saying, but then next you said something else, which was what, what did you say next, what
0: were you, do you Well, know? I was just saying how, is there a limitation to written, Oh, I was, verbal language, Well, yeah, the because word.
1: then I was, yes, so then, ne- the next thing, but it goes back to the idea of shyness and watching, is I've never said this before, but now I'll say, if you want to know the truth, like the social truth, or is what a person's doing or saying true or false, a lie, deceptive or direct, don't listen ever to what you hear, just watch, because gesture, well, what, some what has been called the grain of the voice also, so that the nature everything around the speaking itself, like the speed, the tone, um, the clarity of articulation, and then what the body's doing what the eyes are doing, all of that around whatever's actually said, there's going to be more information there and I'm gonna say truth factors. Say it's in TV cop shows all the time.
0: Yeah, but in some ways, when I look at your work, yeah, you are bringing out the gesture and you're bringing out the tones. Like I, I love the the piece that we showed at the Haus der Kunst mm-hmm. in the Big Sleep, and then that was in the vector. Yeah, you know. Yeah. you have these gestures of sounds it's almost like what you were talking about it's the you're ripping away the words and just going straight to the gesture mm-hmm. maybe straight to the something more true
1: yeah you know, or
0: something that's less of a lie i could say
1: um it's part of the yeah. message
0: yeah i would say altogether it's just
1: it's a part of
0: the message and, and even the visuals are very it's like you're isolating the gestures
1: in yeah. filming, I do that, yeah. and the, and then I seem to have some kind of hyperactive awareness of it, too. So I'm generally overly, but, you know, detrimentally Oh <laughs> yeah, one thing,
0: I'm sorry, I shouldn't talk over you, but I'm always amazed at how far you push it, you'll push it past <laughs> the point. Of comfort. Yeah.
1: Uh, but that's what I trust, so for me, the comfort is past the point, I guess. Of common more common comfort that's where the truth is for me so the easiest piece to talk about in relation to that kind of sens- sensitivity would be working with those children in the project Peggy and friend in health and my attraction to them completely had to do with the way they spoke and how they moved and that's what I filmed and I I hadn't really filmed anything significantly before that so I also found out this is the best thing I do. This is the thing I was born to do which was to film people (laughs) and not uh, not with the... It goes completely dead if I know what's going to happen. So in projects where I've scripted things unless there's an actor involved who's... If they're not giving back a lot, even if they're saying exactly what was written on the page, if they're not finding their way, I'm just dead, that's dead for me. And I've, I've been on that side of filming and scripting, and there are just very few people who are giving you in my experience just giving you gifts short of doing like 100 takes or 50 takes or 25 takes when it's almost like okay accidentally if you do 100 takes eventually basically accidentally let's say it's gonna happen i don't remember it might be a visconti it's italian director who was thought of as a, like a, a actor's director that he was very good for actors, and then I might be getting this wrong, but the but the principle of it still holds that um, that he would do many takes. I guess that that's part of the budget in his case. Yep, if we need 50 takes to wear you out, we're gonna do 50 takes.
0: It's so then like he I, needs to wear out the actor first.
1: Well, the, well the problem. The, yeah. Well, the problem <laughs> with either you work with non-actors who don't care if they're going to be doing a good job job so they'll just go with it go with whatever and that's amazing and that's what happened with the kids but um or you work with a really good actor who's uh bringing something to you i need to be on the edge when I'm filming being with kids filming you're on the edge and then those kids were Little performers already, they already—they just were. It was just the way they were. Uh, and then we just had a dynamic that we learned over time because I did film them for over eight years that in you know, ways I could play or trick, do little tricks.
0: Was that your first use of film? It's, I,
1: I did shoot one film before that, but it's very stiff, and it's the film Dino Talk. Mm -hmm. which worked out as a work, but not because I did a great job filming. Though my shooting ratio was pretty much one to one. That's all I could afford. So every second did count and I did okay. And everything was very controlled. And with the kids, no, it's just, it's not video, it's film with a big camera and hundreds and thousands of dollars when you don't have anything. It just so turned me on. And I became aware that I could tell I had this sense of predictive, uh, this predictive orientation about what was going to happen, where they were going to go. And then I also, as in terms of image making, I was very drawn to f- the edge of the frame and the outside of the frame, not the kind of golden rule framing of within the frame that we're more accustomed to. So I, my filming was a bit unusual in that I was always letting things fall in and out of frame. For the kids, the set, and sometimes like you're shooting film and they're a little tussling or something and they move out of frame and the film's running. So run, 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 run. Okay, that's another $100 right there. But you hold on and then they fall
0: back in. And it's like, perfect. So what is it about? Thank you. Can you get into that? What is it about that that you're intrigued about or obsessed about or somehow you find it? What is it about this outside of the frame? Well, let's
1: say I hadn't really thought about it much. Yeah. I would say, one, as you're asking this question, I will say my first thought was I would say, I have an interest in off-screen space. So let's say I just had the thought, well, that's the world. The rest of the world's off screen. So what's happening off screen if you're holding the camera, mm-hmm. if you're running still, and you're not really seeing much on screen, but maybe something moves a little because your subjects, they're only a foot or two away, but I don't follow them with the camera. There's also something that was happening for a practical reason. At first all along really, which is I didn't want the kids to pay much attention to me filming. So to follow them, which a verite filmer would u- filmmaker would usually do, or a news photographer even, let's say, I wasn't doing that. I mostly, at least for the, all the interior shots, the camera is in a place, and it stays, and I would move around and away from it. So first, let's say, off-screen space would be the rest of the world. And then, since I'm just filming this little slice, I think it it creates a kind of aliveness. It, It reinforces a sense of the alive, because there will still be, probably, a return. It only shows up in a few shots that are in any of these episodes you could see, or in the long film, but it's there, and I have a whole lot more of it. I have a whole lot more (laughs) material from that filming (laughs) over all that time that um, does not appear. In some ways, I
0: see that thread carry through all your other work, even up to this point. Yeah. In some ways. Like, uh, even when you were filming the ants (laughs) and that, they come in and out of the frame. Maybe what it does is it leaves this unknowingness. Yeah if you follow the subject you're in the narrative yeah but when you fix the point and the subject's moving in and out Mm -hmm. there's like an unknowingness like a kind of openness yeah or a void yeah maybe yep Um, i'll give
1: you an example of a precious moment that occurred that there's no way i could consciously have set up and it was in within the first few days of filming uh, Peggy and Fred I turned the basement of this house we all lived in into a set. It's like a bunker. It looks like a bunker. So in Peggy and Fred in Kansas, there's this uh, key moment when Fred enters the frame, blocking the view, because he trips and falls into the space. I couldn't have done that. What actually happened was that the camera on a big tripod took up the whole doorway, and he knew he wasn't supposed to touch it Touch the camera. He didn't want to touch it. He was so sensitive to what it meant, even at that age of six, to be making a film. So he was squeezing by me. <laughs> I mean, we knew Peggy was going to be in there, and he knew he was going to get a phone call. I didn't know much more than that. I knew he was going to answer. I didn't know he was going to say, It's for you, or somebody wants to kill you. I did not know that. And there was a step. And he tripped, and it's just too much, it was so good. And there was no way I could have invented that. I couldn't have written it. After the fact I could, I could start to think, that's a great idea, have people fall into the frame. (laughs) Um, So if I ever make a more narrative film again, uh, maybe I'll have some people fall into the frame, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I have to tell you a yeah, podcast story. Yeah, tell it me the podcast. Does it does <laughs> yeah. okay. involve Jim. It does. Yeah, indirectly.
0: Tell me the podcast.
1: Okay, here's a podcast story. All right. So James Richard, somebody I've worked, i had done one big collaboration with, and uh, and then we had a couple big shows together, but we made a piece together called Crossing that I first showed at the Walker Art Center. When? maybe 2016 and then we did a big we had a big exhibition in germany um, i remember that the stuttgart yeah yeah and then that went on to malmo yeah 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 it's it was great and so he was kind of a co-curator but we both premiered works for that separately and then he had he and Fatima Helberg had a whole lot of other stuff going on. So then, leading into the second version of this show, this exhibition called Speed, that was going to go to Malmo. Have you been to Malmo? The, the, the art center there is extraordinary. It's like a
0: football field. I don't know. And it was built just to show art, but it's this enormous... Is it the one that's like a private collection?
1: No. Okay,
0: no, I've never been there.
1: So a new piece evolved for that second Speed exhibition, and it happened because, uh, let's see, Sylvia Cavalli, who's the uh, director of the Rodeo Gallery in London and in Athens, was listening to a podcast, and there was a Vietnamese poet talking about I think it was her first book called Sheep Machine. Well, that's the title of one of my pieces. And she had actually been my student at Brown. She was in the MFA Creative Writing Program. Mm -hmm. And she saw Sheep Machine. And she asked me this strange question, which was just, if I wouldn't mind if she wrote about Sheep Machine every frame. I said, okay, (laughs) that's fine. I don't think she knew how many frames there were in a second, for instance, yes. at the time. But then, for ever and ever, she was sitting in the production building there on an orange couch, looking at this film, eleven minutes long, I think. One. Frame Twenty-four at a time.
0: f- times eleven. Yeah. Thousands. <laughs> was,
1: yeah, thousands, thousands, yeah. tens of thousands, and I don't know how far she went with it. She, you know. I'm, she moved on, but she did take this writing and pulled passages out of it and made a book called Sheep Machine, which I then, when I found out, Sylvia Cavalli wrote to me and said, I'm just hearing your name, because From eventually the, it she was a venti- podcast
0: with... Uh, it was a with podcast
1: with her. About She's, this
0: project. This poet
1: who's writing, yeah, uh, talking about her book Sheep Machine, which is based on... Uh, my film, Sheet Machine, and interestingly, we hadn't been in touch for years, and I had no idea. But Sylvia heard that, and then uh, somehow in conversation with James, Sylvia and James, James came up with an idea of maybe including a redux of Sheet Machine with her writing as well.
0: Remember? I kind of love projects like that. It was
1: unbelievable. So there's a wa- there was a wall.
0: It was like a full circle with such a long amount of time in between. You know yeah, what I mean? Like
1: it was nuts. And because uh, Sylvia happened to listen to podcasts with this poet. And then Jim loved the piece, original p- video Sheet Machine. So did you it.
0: actually play, did you show the original video? No, so yeah, uh, more you, on
1: his side, yeah. it was more like I'm providing the raw material now. Okay. It's hard to do a show when you're in another country. Yeah. So he was on the ground, yeah, but we yeah. were talking all the time. And he proposed another way of presenting it. It's part of the binocular series that I did for a number of years that would focus on different animal species. And there'd be an image on the left that was the original footage, and on the right, there would be a kind of abstraction of that footage, the same exact timing, the same footage. We actually just did another smaller scale interpretation of this project, Sheet Machine. It just ran at uh, Atonal at Berlin at Kraftwerk yeah. for a month. It closed yesterday.
0: Oh, it cool. was a small That's the piece. one you told me about it. Yeah. And so that was another iteration. It
1: was. Yeah, we reduced it,
0: and we didn't work with her language this time. Um, so it's still in process. But it's kind of wild to make a work and then it's in process and you don't even know. Like people are reacting to it and making things, and then somebody discovers it, comes back to you, then gets reintroduced to another artist who then remixes it again, puts it out there, and then makes another version, all happening through time. Yeah, it was great, it's been great. Yeah, that's, see this whole thing is so weird. This is her name. Oh, that's her. So okay. All
1: right.
0: That's so it. this is Viki now. And her name is what?
1: Up at the top. And then you see it says Viki Kee- now. Yeah, and then so this is on her
0: website, yeah. I guess. We're and we're uh, giving a, a shout out to her. <laughs> yeah. Hi V. <laughs> that's how so it started. People can check her out. You talking? Um,
1: and somebody hearing, and then it went on from there.
0: Yeah. Our in general has this strange place in society that, in some ways, it doesn't really fit in, and in other ways, it kind of threads through everything, but in this very abstract intangible way. Don't you think, because you've traveled a lot for art, don't you think it's quite
1: different in each place? I feel much more at home in Europe as a, a maker
0: than here so it changes when I was it depends where I am and where how much time I have and how the facility is do you know what I mean like it's like when I was in Munich somebody gave me a medium format camera film camera I hadn't done that in years and so I built the project around that and sometimes there's like one thing that spawns a reaction and then all of a sudden I'm making these posters and then I made a film and the film was I made this fictional film and the posters were these fictional post movie posters for the film I didn't know I was gonna do that (laughs) it's just and when I'm here I'm usually working on like big paintings you know
1: (laughs) right but what I mean is how your culture looks at you So in the sanctuary of a place like New York City, there are a lot of, its identity also includes, it's a center for the arts. That became uninteresting to me a long time ago when it got just more and more commercial. So I just, I don't, I don't participate in it. I don't, I just don't. But in Europe, and this is probably on the brink of change, but let's just say London, 'Cause Boris Johnson and Crowd, you know, they'll dismantle all everything they can, even if they're big consumers of art themselves. But for political reasons, they'll just cut, 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 cut as that's what they're doing. So it really could change. But I'll just say what, what I meant was in showing my work. The support for the exhibition, the attitude you feel coming from the people in charge, the curator, all the technical people you're working with. And then especially the conversation that can occur after the let's say after an opening or a screening where you do go out and you can be with other art like artists in your field and there can be ten or twelve of you and it's not just you all getting drunk and having a party. You're sitting and having a really great conversation. I, mean, definitely, I have never had that happen here.
0: I definitely agree with you. Yeah. Like, my time, I just spent like the last five years mostly sort of in Europe, back and forth. Yeah. Art seems to be part of culture. Like, people seem to be involved in it. Yeah. There's an audience, they know how to participate, the audience. You know what I mean? like
1: Yeah. You're not exotic. It's, it's, not like it's part of a longer history. Yeah. And you're not this outsider freak person necessarily. Yeah. Or uh, it's no, I mean the They fund the arts. They fund the <laughs> arts. It's a branch of their society. And that is not true here. It's
0: just not. Here, w- there's a lot of just struggling to survive. Struggle
1: to survive yeah. and then commerce. Yeah. So the wonderful moments for my, in my experience here in the arts, all have to do with what we at least used to call grassroots. So the beginning of an organization or people coming together and arts centers that are, uh, that develop with the artists leading, with the kind of needs of the artists and their need to have contact with each other and the place to share their work, that kind of thing, it does still happen. I know a few people doing it oh, here it really here. well.
0: It happens here, it happens there. The problem with here is that we're kind of forced into a Darwinian situation. Right. And it, But the desire and the vision and the drive of the artists, I think, are the same. Right. Not, you know, Yeah. they're authentic. But we're forced A lot of times we're forced into this Darwinian competition based system. Yeah. We can't, I mean, we don't have a choice. It's like. Well,
1: I do have a choice because I will not participate. I can't. I can't make my work if I pay much attention at all to anything else that people are doing. And that's been the case for a long time. Early on, it it was different. So when I was one painting, then I was then I'm part of a dialogue, I'm really watching, watching, watching. That is a dialogue state and a a practice. And there weren't so many painters either. But then going into film, I don't know what... The interesting thing about working in America in film, and maybe it was true in video, I guess it was, but I attached more, I started out more in that other area of film, is there were no prizes. So it actually maintained a kind of, we could even say purity, <laughs> uh, yeah, because there it. weren't any prizes.
0: And there aren't many still actually here. When it's not reduced to this game theoretic, yeah, right, yeah. then you can, because it's not really about that, but sometimes we have to participate in that when we're applying for something. or yeah. But in reality, to work, for me at least, it's this struggle, meditation, waiting, boredom, listening, that could take months or years, (laughs) and it has nothing to do with commerce. It's like trying to get the essence of something that's undescribable or incomprehensible, or something about society or nature, or just my perception, or something. Whatever it is for me, whatever it is for you, takes time you can get caught up in this sort of game and then it's more about like it's something else
1: well you know much more about that because I don't know that game what I know of what you do, what I've seen of it, what I've been aware of it must be kind of hard to do play both sides uh, in this sense play the side of I'm making my work and then at the same time to do this tremendous thing that you're doing for the kind of life of art and other
0: people. Yeah, I grew up in a big family, and <laughs> I my grandparents were like your classic kind of New York socialists. Uh, yeah. So they just instilled in me this thing like, you have a responsibility to others. Huh. You know? I feel like the artist is the most important per- person. Yeah. And this situation we find ourselves in, we live in a kind of alternative universe within this universe mm-hmm. it, which doesn't really function well and so I have a mission to somehow enhance the power of the artist vision and like enhance the opportunities for artists to be authentic and to I, I don't know how to do it but you know vector was my small way of doing that and, yeah. it, and somehow by doing this zine and giving it away for free I was able to navigate the Commercial art world, the like you could slip through all yeah. of it somehow. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of try to hack the system. That's not in great. not in the most badass way. It's not that bad. No, 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 no. <laughs> but just kinda like It
1: just happens you can
0: actually The system's it's, open. It's hackable. Yeah, I see. People well, really we have do a do care. negative
1: take on that yeah. word more now, but yeah. not but the way you're using it it's just you're saying you found a way a path in to a bunch of different things. in my sense of how you were working for Vector,
0: yeah, maybe I the
1: know. kind of mission statement that I must have read or something. Um, that you would go to a place and be there for a while and it was kinda unpredictable how long you'd be there. Like you go to the different
0: key. Everything's different. Every, s- every city Well
1: this yeah. was the practice of an our mind. So you were—it's like I—I I thought when I was first learning about this, I thought, well, it, it's going to be silly to say. It's like making an enormous painting across time, and you don't know how long it's going to take, and you don't know what it's going to look like, and so like you have your ears open, and you are just able, I imagine, to probably scrape by. And then magic things would happen, and, yeah. and that would lead to something else. And then there'd just be a moment of a kind of saturation where you say, "This is it,"
0: and you then proceed with the production. Yeah. I meet I meet the right person that leads to the next people. Then we find the location, and then it's it's so magical. Yeah, and and when you and then you realize that embedded in even the commercial system is there is an authenticity inside mm. even the most commercial structures like the people I meet people are open people in the art world they still believe in the magic of this yeah. weird discourse or whatever you want to call it I, I in my experience I'm kind of an optimist in that respect I yeah.
1: I I have to say I should not sound so negative no, no. in fact I am yeah. ignorant. It's, but it's a position I've had to take for myself to keep this kind of ecology of mine yeah. for this
0: kind of wonder and discovery process that I depend on. I agree with you, though. I, as far as my own artwork is concerned, I mean, sometimes you can't even hear yourself. You yeah. get swallowed up in this. So I totally understand that. I admire that you've been able to kind of participate and keep your time and your inner voice safe, especially as you, let's face it, like you, you're you at this point now where people can just come and start showing your work. And mm-hmm. do you see what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you wanted to let those open the doors up, they'll come and start, <laughs> do you know what I mean?
1: i don't know yeah. yet we'll see if yeah, any more yeah. doors open but um but i'll say that it was <laughs> i kept thinking along the yeah. very long road that we were on because of covid that the show was supposed to open in march of last year so it was supposed to be ready then but we had all this additional time i did think sometimes okay if this is success i don't want it because it's too painful and it's not the way I cannot relate to my work the way this other person who has a very different occupation and is reading and finding her way through my work. <laughs> and I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, what? Wait, wait a <laughs> minute. No, what? That's not that big. What are you making of such a big deal out of that? In the end, it was fantastic for me because i mean it really <laughs> she's she's great the curator um in the way i just learned things in the way that's and one thing was something well, maybe it's a false narrative for myself but there was what she was setting up was a kind of continuity thread from the very first film to the thing I finished like a day or half a day before the opening, the whole road, and if and if other things I'd hoped would be included, which were very different, were not included. Well, that would have been a different story, and maybe not as as clear. So she did recognize an order that was in not.
0: Like, you may not have conceived of that, not but at then all. when you saw what she found, Eventually. This thread. It took a while. Yeah, but then...
1: we well, I've never experienced it? Yeah,
0: and you're also so close, you're inside it, and yeah. somebody, it's like an editor on a film, right? You're the right. director, and then you are yeah. the editor, and the editor... Yeah. You know, ...put things together that... Um, yeah, there's something to be said about that. Um, what's cool about that is... You could have another curator take the same work and create a different thread.
1: Yeah, which absolutely. Is kind of
0: and, but yet you, the artist created that openness. Mm-hmm. It could be reiterated throughout time. Like for the next thousand years, it could be re.
1: And it will. That's yeah. what happens. For work that's going to last, that's where this uh, the sense of the artist's intention not matter, not counting, not mattering uh, enters in. It's not something you want to... It it should never be taken in a literal sense, which unfortunately, in schools that teach cultural theory or uh, art criticism, it can be taken and taught as literal. The artist's intention doesn't matter. Well, one, if they're alive and right next to you a little bit, it actually can be an interesting conversation. But two, it's just about uh, work i mean good work will stay open somehow to the present and ancient work still can that is of interest in the present that's where intention what shifts is the reception context so that anybody would want to look at my first film that i made with another person desmond horsfield that anyone would want to look at it now well they didn't for 10 years after we made it, not at all. No one, we were pariahs, but that is of any interest now, has their eyes for it. And that's not what I meant to say, but it's a different piece. It is a different piece to our even perceptual apparatus. When we made that particular film, it is amazing, but the soundtrack in that film, I don't know if you got to listen and I can give you a link, it's this cut up text. We could not understand it. We who knew what was being said and cut up into tiny bits, like, you know, just tiny parts of speech, like morphemes and phonemes, and then once in a while a word, or a word broken in the middle, like, like the word significant comes up, but it's cut. so you. Uh, like arbitrarily cut, we weren't listening, we just chopped. So the word significant, you kind of can hear way back then, because you hear signe, and then a little later, can. well you could, and that bunch of stuff in between. But we could not hear the words. Then we changed, I don't, I don't mean Desmond and I, everybody, and perception sped up so much that Let's say 15 years later, it was like, you, yeah, I hear every, I can reconstruct the sentences. I can hear the tiniest bit of a sound. And if I wanted to spend any time, I could reconstruct the sentence out of that.
0: Like now we can, but now we can actually watch that and it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Whereas then you were feeling something, you were building it. You, you were, weren't quite sure what you were building, but somehow now it's ready. To be experienced.
1: Well well, what was interesting then, so this is 1975, was that the feeling of the rhythm of the cuts and the sound uh, because everything had been the length of all the shots had been predetermined like a musical score. So what we filmed was all laid out ahead of the filming and we knew what we wanted the camera to do and we and I, I ended up being the subject. I didn't. We didn't mean for me to be the subject. We were gonna. We wanted to film somebody else. But then one day we just said, "Let's just do it," and then we did. So then editing, we didn't look at anything and we didn't listen to anything. We just followed our score, and we cut the stuff together. And then, uh, so the the strong sense of the piece was of a lot of stuff there. You couldn't follow a line through either the image or the sound, or certainly anything sound to image, of which, by the way, there's pretty much nothing. There's no sound to image content in that film. And at the time, let's say Agnes Martin's painting her paintings. Well, this had to do with Agnes Martin, but we were making something on film that had somebody in the world moving around, and it's crossing time. But it was had more to do at that time than Agnes Martin painting, than anything else, and so when we first showed it, we're in school. The teacher's the smartest teacher. The one person who might have been able to live with it, because it was just completely dismissed. Uh, just said, "There's too much going on. You can't do this."
0: <laughs> but now that mean, makes I didn't sense. watch it
1: for so long, and then maybe 12 years later. I happened to watch it again. And I was just knocked out. It's like that baby crying So what's for
0: happening there? We sped up. Happening?
1: We sped up. We sped up. Our, well, well, the things thrown at us, the thing like, mostly television.
0: Um, but maybe it's everything. It's it like everything. It's everything. like going on the phone, you're able to just go from everything. here to here to here to here to read this, to take this, to take, take it all, navigate the whole thing. And That's come, right. And, and we weren't it,
1: even like. close to that yet. I mean, we're, this is 75. So yeah. 10 years later, so 85, so you're starting to have some things, the internet-y type things, but it's really not in everyone's life particularly yet. It's just starting. But meanwhile, just from television, and probably this cable with 500 channels with nothing to watch. Like, I'm looking through 500 channels, I can't find anything I want to watch, but there are 500 channels. And even things like the remote control that comes along the way, because when I'm growing up with TV, there are three channels. If you need to change your channel, you have to get up, walk across the room, and turn a dial.
0: So technology is progressing. It does, it does technology change us, it or changed. is this we're evolving? Oh, it totally changes us. You know what us. I mean? Is it part I, of evolution, or is it something we're doing to ourselves?
1: Well, see, <coughs> we're totally doing Well, what I think is one of the primary paradigm shifts is that up to a point in the development of technology, including things like appliances in your house, up to a point, there was a, a kind of necessity driving invention. So, okay, there's a telephone. That's a cool thing. Long ago. You know, or there's electricity. Um, hey, that's better than houses burning down. So, so there are people inventing stuff, coming up with stuff, and then also figuring out better ways to make something we're already using. Like, I don't no, know, a blender. <laughs> um, Washing machine. Ma- yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Washing, dishwashers, yeah. especially. Uh, but so uh, then it's a kind of need proceeds the availability of this thing. And, or they're kind of hand in hand a little bit moving along, more or less at the same pace, a, a big moment for me was when camera makers, so let's just say Sony, mm-hmm. uh, decides that the 4.3 format, which was a format of film for so long, and then theatrical film that started it with certain kinds of films take on this, a widescreen which was always quite unique as it, it was, it was, as it was beginning. It was always spectacle. It wasn't, it wasn't like being used to tell a drama. Dra- it wasn't for drama and intimate films with uh, a lot of people stuff going mm-hmm. on. It was better for spectacle. There was a moment, <laughs> maybe especially hard for people working in film, when whoa, these cameras they're gonna do, let's say the easy one is sixteen nine. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't ask for sixteen nine, and all the framing that was done forever and ever up till that point, most of it, you had close-ups that were close-ups. The thing that really drove me mad with video cameras doing sixteen nine was what was a close-up because you couldn't have a close-up without this other space there too, and. So as a maker really deep into this image making and framing within a very fixed format of four three, I was furious. But then it did become interesting, that that the the kind of the defining, I mean the early, like the discovery that you could even have a close up in film and what that would do to the viewer versus a you know a medium shot or a wide angle shot so this whole rhetoric of the image of 43 and what a close-up was about it changed so Peggy and Fred is shot on 43 if I had been able to think of that if I was if I'd started in 169 that film wouldn't exist I would have had to think a different
0: way it definitely would have Ruin the outside the frame. <laughs>
1: We're ruin scenario. Scenario. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Talk there. That we talked about.
0: There goes there yeah. goes the
1: outside of the frame.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because the right. frame's endless. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because yeah, the
0: outside is it's, like it's tra- all of the tra-
1: world. So so that's just an example that I felt so much personally. Now, is the, the the drive of technology and money attached mm-hmm. is what's leading. It's not. Oh, hum- I mean, yeah, we all want medicine to get better. That's right. nice. We want cars that are safe. That's good. <laughs> but those are, well, uh, separate from big farm. It's like, OK, that's uh, more on the need side, I guess. That's following a pattern. But we're not, we don't have that world anymore. We just don't. So, so there was a paradigm shift in my life, I yeah. believe from something that had to be ancient which is that people figure things out because they kind of like helps
0: it's not just for the need anymore that's right there's other drives that are outside of us they're not human that's right they're they're in and of themselves and it doesn't matter if it doesn't necessarily need to help us do anything that's right it is doing its own thing like these algorithms Yep. They're gonna do their own thing. We don't even know what they're gonna. We might make the algorithm to make content that filters for your interests, but then it has this whole other outcome mm-hmm. on society as a whole. When all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa, mm-hmm. we put we made this recipe and look what it baked." <laughs> yeah. A thing we didn't expect that we didn't want. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and then- unknown variable, and now we're trying to fit in. To these new I, things that are outside of us in a way. Yeah, I so. Am uh, I summarizing? Well, <laughs> too
1: no, but, much? but that's your. Yeah. But,
0: uh, so I had just read
1: yeah. your statement.
0: Yeah, what did you think? In
1: the big sleep. <laughs> did you like my title?
0: <laughs> I loved the all of it. The Apocalypse is Sexy. <laughs> I, I thought. It was tongue in cheek, but. I it, thought. But I'm saying something. This is. I, I
1: actually wrote to Natalie right away yeah. after I read it and said, you have to read this. I know, I believe, you're not as optimistic like you. I love that you could find a way to see, I don't believe you necessarily feel this at all, but that you are able, maybe even it is just, it's partly tongue in cheek, it's just walking on this line where you're, um, it's almost like, yes, let's embrace it. Well, it's here and it's, uh, and we are, different already and we're gonna be more different. Well and we could say, well that's always been the case too as, as time goes by. But it's something else now. It really it's is something else. And it when is we change it our physiology. Is the human
0: business. And once is, we change our physiology, yeah. Then there's no going back. Yeah. Right. And it's it I mean a lot's changed. We live our life expectancy you know for better or worse yeah but it's <laughs> it's a big shift but once we started transforming and embedding um, and I, you're right I, in this case I didn't want to decide mm-hmm. good or bad pessimism, optimism I just wanted yeah. to ride the line of like something's happening
1: well what's important you know? in what you were writing is awareness so, so that you could make a statement around what's going on now, has been for a while, and you kind know, of where where we might be, um, and make that a positive positive statement. What's important is that you speak from awareness. It's not that you say this is great. We want. We need. It, it is uh, a recognition. In five years, you might be leading a pack of. Let's go back to the woods and learn how to build yeah, fire. maybe.
0: I don't know. But <laughs> yeah.
1: I know that... But the awareness is what is important and that's what needs to start happening more and more.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that in some way art is about awareness. That That's part of what we're trying to do. What, what do you mean, we? Art? Artists are... There's some awareness is somehow, at least for me, mm-hmm. artists, art. being an artist means I am kind of surfing awareness mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. It's part of what I'm trying, to, one of the things I'm trying to do,
1: Yeah.
0: you know. Like, yeah. I don't know how it is for you. No,
1: it's, I have a slightly um, different version, but i yeah. say I'm a cypher. Yeah. So what is happening, I have developed this capacity over time through making and making and making but uh, right from the beginning, I thought, um, it's just w- what I am making is coming through me through the from the outside. You know, I used to sew all my own clothes. Yeah. And so I, I started sewing when I was three. So by the time I was in junior high or high school, I pretty much made my own clothes because I didn't like what the stuff that was around. And then the thing that would happen again and again and again is like, it'd be something like... I made this with purple velvet and there's lace on it and nobody was doing that, hard to find the velvet, hard to find the lace. A month or two later, it's all over Vogue and then you say, okay, so somehow this thing is in the air and, and I just happened to get that thing in the air, however that happens and other people did too. So there's a, there's a subterranean flow, or at least there used to be, I don't know. I don't know if we have. Can we still have that, or or, or the or is it only like you've got to be a lot younger and you already live inside this other space that I don't know that space so well. So, so I had the sense of myself as a cipher. And what did you say you? No, were? I like that. But what
0: did you say you were? Oh, I was just saying I think we play in awareness. That's yes. like one of our tools. Surfing awareness. Yeah, yeah I like that. I like that I in some ways yeah I wonder if we're somehow sometimes we can tell the future yeah or or are we making the future you see what I mean I'm not quite All sure right. which is which because when you put something out there and I don't mean just you or me yeah right? but like you're picking up on things I'm picking up on things then when I start to I, I like cipher, because when I start to make something or create something or develop an idea, I something feels right now, in a certain way. So I'm tapping. I'm listening, right? I'm listening, and I don't know what I'm listening to. Mm-hmm. So, and the people call that, let's say, it it could be called
1: intuition, but yeah. intuition is just not so vague. It's not. It's not as vague as. The idea we have yeah. of intuition, it's actually there's a level of intelligence that's processing, processing, processing.
0: Yeah, it's not intuition. I don't like to use intuition. Yeah. Because um, it implies, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, but, like, that's I mean, right. It's, it's not, not like that. that. Like, when I, one of the things I love about your work is that you, there's so much experience behind it. Like, uh, a lot of artists, ideas can come quick. And, and you can make things and it works, right? Yeah. But then to push it past that, right? The idea that comes quick and to go to that next where it takes more boredom and patience and yeah. and struggle and then you get to And then it's another thing, right? And mm. they both work. There's an mm. audience. That's right. Sometimes things that are fast work really well, right? right? There's yeah. a lot of art we see now even that's like, But then there's, over time, when an artist is working for a long time, like, I've noticed this, that there's a place that you can go where it's really far. Like, you're really pushing it. And it's almost like you have to destroy everything that comes before it. And it, and when I meet an artist like you when I see your work I can see it in the work I'm like holy shit she pushed this way past any point I would have taken it (laughs) like and then there's this like magic that you get to but it requires oh yeah it requires (laughs) a lot of courage because you do have to destroy the things that go before it and I think that's one of the reasons why you have to keep yourself outside of the Kind of business of art. Yeah, it is because it requires you have to really be tuned and sensitive. Otherwise, you won't might not push yourself that far. You know.
1: Where well, I have too much so, expect. I have to. I'd be second guessing. I'd have yeah, anticipation of the other side, which is when it's in the world. I do think about when the thing will be in the world. I always think I'm not making it for myself. I'm making it. To have to, to go someplace and then it's not mine, then it's for uh, then it's for. The <laughs> I don't want to say the world. Yeah. It's not mine. Um, don't touch up
0: Oh yeah, I was. <laughs> I need to. <laughs> you need something. I need some you want a stuffed animal. I need a teddy bear. <laughs> and I have a rabbit over there. <laughs> so keep going, I'm uh, yeah. with you. OK, so this is like. Well,
1: what, you know, that's funny. If anything, the, the piece they just made for the MIT exhibition that is, is commissioned for that, well, that was in one way a long time coming. Um, and it did have to do with leaving New York during COVID, staying with my, my brother in New Hampshire, spending part of every day in the woods starting to take pictures i'm not a photographer i know i'm not taking photographs i can't think of it that way because i'm too good at what i do i'm not going to start doing something everyone else can do so well and much better i'm just curious about some image things that i'm i'm capturing let's say that went on for a long time i didn't know i liked anything about woods um it did remind me finally of childhood, but it all became really important over the course of, let's say, nine months. Finally, it's very, very important. And now I have thousands, tens of thousands of photographs and videos, and I start to know what I need to do. But so, there, this was
0: during COVID. You were in. Yeah, this is I spent time in the woods. Yeah, this was And exactly you just were taking photos and recording. And, yeah, it, yeah, like with faith. But
1: what, what actually happened was. The forests in New Hampshire, or in southern New Hampshire at least, there aren't deciduous trees around. They're mostly hemlock and so the imagery that of, from the history of particle physics of, of the bubble chamber photographs that were uh, a way of looking at the evidence of collisions of particles and looking for certain patterns to say yes actually now we've seen this 5,000 times we can say this is the case. You know, this subatomic particle exists. It's what we predicted mathematically, and now you see it in these images. And those are fabulous images, Th- those bubble chamber things where it's like, like a dark blue background, let's say, with swirly things, Yeah, they're right? cool. <laughs> I know, they're very
0: cool. I can look at them Forever, yeah, right? I love them.
1: Yeah. yeah, same here. And at CERN, they have, they have a little museum now, and they have a live, a kind of table that's producing a live version of something that looks like that, which is actually cosmic rays hitting, but it's live. We could stand over it and film stuff and that looked like that. So anyway, what was bugging me when we started going on these walks in the w- in the woods of New Hampshire, and not in Vermont, for instance, only across a river, totally different, is I, d- I just started saying, Tom, I do not remember ever being in the woods with so many trees falling. These trees would be all the way down and the roots sticking up like naked. Or often they were caught by other trees. So there were these diagonals of tree holding other tree, not necessarily a dead tree. Because if anything, if any of the roots were still in the ground at all, and even like here in the Story Park, when they cut off a tree because there's a problem, like a big old tree, and they leave the trunk, the trunk has no leaves or no branches, it's still alive. It's part of a network. That's something I did start to learn about. So it's a part actually of, as, as some people have been writing, botanists writing about it, it's part of a communication network. So it helps the other trees stay alive. To have even a trunk in the ground, there's a yeah, communication. Yeah,
0: mycelium. Yeah, through and yeah the it fungus. It kind of acts and as and almost like a nervous system. Yeah, so yeah.
1: extraordinary, right?
0: It's it extraordinary. Is. It could be a mind in a way, very well, yeah, slow mind. That's
1: a way yeah, some people mind. are considering it, right? Yeah. So well, all I'm seeing at first is these same kinds of shapes that are so of so much kind of depth and, and such erratic compositions that you, that I was tuned into in the bubble chamber business. So so I'm looking for those places as I take pictures, pictures, pictures. And then there was a like a, a very sad day after about six months of this of every day doing this. When I finally looked up hemlock trees because I often I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to know too much about ants or those kinds of ants when I'm filming them. I need to not know what's underneath the ground. I want to think about that and see what I can kind of figure out by watching for many days and filming. I won't go into that too much, but that's how I would work. Then maybe later I might read about ants or not. But with this tree business, I did look it up and those trees this whole forest are probably going to die and quite quickly because there's an invasive species that arrived in the 80s it came from Japan it was in the south but not doing that much harm it only got north into the northeast hemlock forest in the last few years is it a tree or the worms it's like it's the a um, it's a hold on hey tom yes what is the, What's the thing that's killing the hemlocks? Uh,
0: it's called it's a It's a form of
1: uh, sap-sucking insects similar to an aphid that's
0: found. Oh, okay. Okay, sap-sucking insects. <laughs> so it's a, like an aphid, a kind of beetle. Yeah, yeah. Not, not visible. Yeah.
1: All right, everything became dark at that moment. I just think okay this is a life cycle I just somehow don't remember having ever seen it in my life before Um, but here it is no it wasn't a life It is another kind of life cycle so I started then filming I was only taking stills and it was it's hard to film like it was hard to film at CERN if you walk in and you see this really amazing looking five-story tall all sorts of colors detector they just let you stand in one place. A lot of people have been standing in that place, taking pictures or films. What do you do with it? Oh, you don't know mostly what you're looking at. That wasn't so interesting. I can't remember exactly why I shifted to that, except
0: uh, because there you're drawing relationships between the complexity of the imagery and you were at CERN for a period of time, and how you can't just do the obvious thing. You had to be there and. It took time. The same thing in this forest, mm-hmm. like you were there, you didn't have any intention of yeah. filming the trees, but over time, you started to draw these connections between this at and that, Cern, and, and then that, disease and enters. then and the disease, and then, which is a par- which and you is don't one even of know it. what you're doing, and then all of a sudden you break out the camera, the f- you start yeah. filming, yeah, something's forming, yes, you know,
1: yeah, so 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 Remember, like, I begin a, to have an idea, I am going to make something. And so I, uh, from this, and I just thought, um, whatever it is, I'm calling it hemlock. And then I liked the term hemlock because I already knew. I mean, this great thing about that, the, the name hemlock for one tree, to several plants. The plants are named hemlock. No, is it the other way around? <gasps> Either the plants are. <or> oh, Tom. <laughs> Do you remember if the hemlock trees were named hemlock first or the plants were named hemlock first? I think it's a tree.
0: Tom's our Google, Mr. Encyclopedia.
1: Okay, hun, that's enough right now. <laughs> I love it. That's okay. Bye. I love it. <laughs> okay, so uh, the tree is named after the plant. Why? Because it smells like the plant. It smells like. There's the no plant. other relation. Yeah. None. And then we know Socrates takes hemlock, to, he made that choice. So there's this, this huge history, and then what connects these trees and that poison, which is still all over the place um, and can be used um, and is very deadly, uh, And uh, it's that they smell a little alike. I love that. It, how does something get named? In this case, because it smelled a little like the other thing. That's a, an aside, but the, your world starts to just, like, when you start on a new project, it just, acu- like, stuff accumulates to it. So what happens... There's a
0: gravity, isn't there? Like, there's a kind yeah, of force. it takes a while. If you start with this mini kind of Big Bang, and then yeah. things start forming.
1: Yes, that's right. Attractions.
0: And, yeah, yeah.
1: And rejections. And, and it's
0: weird. And stuff
1: that falls off. Like in yeah. like in the big in the origin or the big yeah. bang, so uh, so the funny thing about needing actually needing to make a piece for MIT, but really I'm not I'm not even close to what it is I want to be doing yet, and I've done many 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 months of experiments with the imagery of what I'm I'm getting. Mostly with tons of effects and and playing with like a still versus moving world, but but I was making like uh, uh, these tests that mostly had to do with the image always moving upward. So like it was never going to stop because it's going to be a loop also. So to walk into the space, so an architectural space, with what I call um, an ambient work, not a linear work, mm-hmm. I wanted the kind of tree-ness or, or, the, or, the, or the arrangement of the forest or the details of the bark or any of the things uh, big and small that I was uh, capturing, uh, I wanted it to be constantly moving up, 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 never stopping. Well, I did a lot of amazing tests. I have a lot of stills I pulled from that. I loved it, but it, it was not coagulating, and then I'm almost down. <laughs> like a week (laughs) so speaking about fast so the fast and slow thing what i do usually more often than not is both so let us say i spent almost two years or more if i count cern and also working at caltech um, as an artist resident that an image bank i both things i'm seeing also all the things i chose to film and the conversations I recorded, and how I did the recording, and what people were saying, or what I set up, is sometimes a setting that gave different nuance to what they were talking about. So various research scientists, all in particle physics, I was recording. I'm making an archive, like I did for Peggy and Fred. I'm making a huge archive in these spaces of science, just within physics. So. Uh, here i am thinking i'm going to i'm like drawn to the forest because it's like a bubble chamber and it becomes this other thing that has to do with disease and this kind of paradox enters the forest itself that is dying and then that usually those kinds of problems like kudzu in the south they often happen because somebody tried to fix something else and they introduce what ends up being a pathogen and makes everything worse in a whole other unpredictable way that keeps happening in our wor- in the earth on earth. So that is a, a Peggy and Fred her- hell kind of paradox. So I'm in Michigan. Uh, Tom and I tried to get to Michigan for a whole year during our COVID time to see his mother, who's now 96 and, and still going, you know, but we just were desperate to get there. And lots of things like hurricanes even interfered <laughs> this summer, but we finally go. And we're there in uh, September. And uh, we're there about a month. And so we're ready to leave. We really need to get back. And then the show. I need to get back. <laughs> oh, God. So this is
0: like a couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah, this just happened. And, <laughs> and you're still not finished. Or oh, I hadn't started.
0: Yeah, yeah um, we started. I am sorry started. But it, it was the two years of accumulation.
1: So two great things happened. Yeah. One, we were delayed leaving because of... Ida?
0: Yeah, there's all right. the story. I mean, we had a
1: flash flood in the living yeah. room from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. If we had left the day we wanted, we would have missed... We left a day later because it was raining, but we had the whole building filled up. I, I mean, the, the drainage mm-hmm. stopped. So through the whole building of over almost 300 apartments, all levels, there were breakthroughs.
0: So we're watching TV one
1: night, and then we have this live soundtrack of there's water tumbling in the next room. So it was good we hadn't left, and that's so a factor, and it became a, a storm, which is, by the way, the last line of Peggy and Fred in Hell is, oh, the storm. Why did the AI finally give up, maybe 2,000 years from now? that was in the backstory from the beginning of Peggy and Fred. I was AI, I was studying them. I was studying human emotion. That was my backstory from 1983 yeah. on. I finished that project when uh, I finally I wrote that. the script.
0: I mean, I just, can I just think about that for a second? <laughs> I just love that. That it's like the future and you're an AI or it's an AI and it's actually studying something from a thousand years earlier because it was programmed and that whole notion of time and, and this might be a remnant but yet it's a real life I it just blows my mind right that kind of stretch and like this really happened but yet it's some ai scientists analysis or something
1: mhm
0: <laughs> yeah that's and the, the and
1: well my version of ai that's heavy it was, yeah. But it was, uh, it was how I started. Yeah. Once I clicked with which, I, once I tuned into these kids, the thing that made me, what I told myself. All right, they're in a post-apocalyptic world. They're the only people left. We don't know what the apocalypse was. I always, backstory for me was it's either nuclear or it's environmental. And there were points where I thought. It would be so nice to do something that's more like a little narrative here. Maybe it can show at film forum. <laughs> the few times I kind of tried that, it was not good. It shut everything down. It had to stay float. It had to stay floating with the filming and then making the, these episodes. But finally, it was in 2015. I just sat down one day and I wrote the script for the AI. and. And I knew who I wanted to perform it. Doesn't matter. It's this Dutch artist who does work with like electrodes on his face that make his face twitch. Arthur
0: Alisoner twitch
1: twitch and yeah. and he can tell funny stories and uh, about what's going on and it's it's really uncanny and he's yeah. been he used to work with Ronco Scott they, together they developed this uh, series of works around this seeming dialogue between a, a computer and the and um, a human face and the computer had, which had I think his name was Huge Harry which was the first or one of the very first um, artificially produced voice voices that could come out of a computer mm-hmm. so one of these two people Remco Ska also Dutch, was an artist but he was also a scientist and he was the key person, or one of the key people, developing huge, or Harry, the voice Harry, the first, and Matt definitely helped set a course for me. Of uh, I, I was moving into it in a different way, but they were working with. A, it was a performance that they did, that was that gave an impression of a conversation between the mind of the computer and the flesh. Of the human and the computer or the AI of the computer trying to understand what this expression meant so they would set him up on stage and maybe there would be a point where this side of the face the mouth goes up to smile and the other sides pulled down so it's an impossible expression and you feel it was a wonderful performance work they did you feel like you really are feeling that the two kind of entities, or at least the computer, is uh, <laughs> trying to get it. And then there was a, I was aware of work at MIT by a wo- one woman in particular, uh, and who was doing AI research focused on affect, human affect. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of there, and and that there was a, that's in my notes, which I do. I was amazed when I finally found that notebook again, because I, I actually had really written it down. But I was very aware, because I hung out at MIT and in Cambridge in the 70s, and as I said at MIT last week, I was an MIT groupie when I was starting yeah. from the age of 18. So I, I just had a fascination it was nonspecific, it was just I liked being there. Yeah. I just felt right there. Weird. <laughs> but it's still <laughs> true. Uh, It feels better to be at Caltech than to be at
0: Brown, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I like to have dialogue with people working on, like, the edge of our knowledge, you know? Yeah, that's right. Pushing this sort of realm on the line of the known and the unknown.
1: Right. And it's not so much, like, I think part of the comfort factor for my kind of brain was in to be at a place like Caltech, even more than CERN, which is further away from you as a visitor, but yeah. uh, as I say, outside of the arts and in what we call the culture in general, this devotion, and a passionate devotion, and risky devotion, and selfless devotion that can exist in that space, science space, has to do with the kind of knowledge uh, production right and so and they're looking for proof of things that will be proven and then later they can be disproven so in physics that's a big one It's yeah, kind of just keeps happening to be,
0: has yeah. to be able to be disproven right that's sort of the it just yeah that's
1: right so and it goes deeper and deeper and that's it's a very live time uh, in physics around it's it's actually I probably am going to be wrong in saying this, but I'll say I have the impression that the theoretical physics, which is going to happen in math, and then the proof, which is done at places like CERN, or, uh, or you know the gravity project, that this is material-based, and the detectors, everything that needs to be built to try to get it to say the, big, the the easy one is the Higgs boson mm-hmm. so that's no contemporary yeah. we, we've heard about it but to figure out how to make a thing that might make it possible to say yes in fact this theory from the 60s is gravitational actually the case. waves right right you yeah, make this exactly. thing
0: it takes 25 years you or spend longer huge amounts of money yeah and then you have our sensor picks up on the waves.
1: Yeah, and it's and not we even. can
0: tell that two black holes collide. I mean, it's miraculous. And guess right.
1: what? It's not even. This is weird, too. Yeah. It's not just like there's a lot of money. Like at CERN, for instance, there's yeah. not a lot of money.
0: Right. So
1: there are many countries involved. The United States didn't sign on at the beginning of CERN.
0: No, we even shut down our collider, which would have been bigger.
1: We shut ours down. Yeah. And then there's this like preposterous, arrogant yeah. pronouncement from yeah. in Congress, I think, that we already did our bit. Like World I mean, it's War even two, amazing that it.
0: that gravitational wave detector um, LIGO mm. was able to be built and they had to redo it. Yeah. You know? And it's okay. It, it, this didn't work, so you do and it again. And now we have a new astronomy tool. Right. Like a new teles- kind of telescope. All that stuff. So it just and we, like, we're at the very beginning. We don't even know what we're going to be able to detect now. That's right. It's like a whole new eyeball. That's right.
1: <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. surprising that many artists would be drawn to that space of unknown. And there's a I, I do want to say this: going into these residencies, and certainly having grown up in a science-oriented family, and being kind of adept enough at it myself as a young person. But I just was more of an artist than a mathematician. But I was just very good at it. But I loved it. But the art was going to always be it. But so this this faith, or kind of faith, actually, in the motivations and the technique of research and in physics. That's all I can talk about. But I assume it's more broadly true and in scientific research. Let's just presume that. That it's not just you're trying to figure out the unknown. You are making <laughs> things to figure out the unknown that have never been made. You can't. And the, the, I think it's extraordinary. I'm not going to advertise them. I will say, at a place like Caltech, you had to run. They, those people are running all the time to a very big hardware chain that I will not name <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to get the stuff to be making these very sophisticated
0: machines. Yeah, like in your And you're seeing
1: (laughs) some of that in Hemlock Handmade. That is, so they kind of... They're using
0: like everyday materials. From from that big chain of Different big box stores. That's right. They're not, it's not some high tech. (laughs) No, so it's
1: not magic. And it's not built by a computer or a robot. It's handmade. It's hand, it is. And it's jig you know it's, it's rigged it's totally it's like
0: like m- duct tape
1: bricolage <laughs> yeah if you're in if you're like we were in the tunnel of one of the small accelerators in the antimatter factory at CERN that device that 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 channel the circular tunnel it's much smaller and you could walk through mm-hmm. most of it the thing <laughs> that object itself
0: is got rope holding it together yeah like we think it's, it's you know something out of star trek that up. is nano made <laughs> and you're in you're saying there's duct tape and rope and it's held together and something breaks and they glue <laughs> it with hot glue but yeah it's doing this most esoteric yeah because it because in a way they're like us they're they're navigating this unknown field and they're just going as they go yeah and, and they know a lot something happens yeah with the laser and they're like we gotta hang it upside down get some velcro you mm-hmm. know it's not that's like right. some precision thing but the math is precise that's right it, it's still this process yeah right to the knowledge yeah. it's not i went in with a stronger feeling
1: about there being really a lot of common ground between the practice of art and the practice of, let's say, the, the research side or proof side within physics. So, and, and the devices that were made from, uh, I mean, that have to, you try it and then you, it doesn't work, so you make some changes and then more changes, so they almost bricolage Aspect to that, but very knowing. So going back to knowing, and we're not calling it intuition. We're not. We're not calling it because you know so much for the possibility of this thought to become conscious and to act on it in any way. It's called to people say intuition, so, but we need you have a better to have word. Knowledge. We need a better word. Yeah, we we we're need to come up with word. something. Maybe not, but <laughs> we know what it is. I have to pee. Oh, if I go
0: pee, yeah. can you remember where you're at? Because this is important. I know important. what I want to say. We're really getting... I know what it. I want to say. All right, say. I'll be right back. Yeah. Okay, we're back. One... We need to back up. All right, we're good.
1: Yeah, so one thing I... It was... Uh, so going to these... Uh, having this incredible privilege of visiting CERN twice as an artist resident, and... Having a long residency at Caltech, so one thing that happens, you arrive at this building that's a, at, at CERN, big letters, "Antimatter Factory." You're already saying, "That's fun," <laughs> you know. If you wanted to go to Disneyland, here it is, <laughs> and you're going to go through that door. So we so we, uh, we are dropped off there, and we go through the door, and the second we walk in scientist who's going to take care of us and show us around for a while. His his name is Michael Dozer. And he's very, like, cool-looking, like, dressed. And we walk in with cameras running. There were four of us filming with different types of cameras, including a 16-millimeter film camera. We're just like... Then we walk in, he's there, and I just burst out. Whoa, okay. There were no engineers or architects involved in building out this space right because this is insane and he a dozer says right in fact to work here if you do not know how to do basic electrical wiring and soldering you have no business being here we can't wait for figuring out the specs of what we want the engineers to Make for us, we have to do it. If we get an idea of what we should try, to get that into a form of specs would take months, and by then it would be wrong already. So we need to just do it, and that's why there were just cables, like it would be a hundred cables looped across this big building this maybe the size of half a football field like a hundred of them just looped and held up by a rope like a big dragon across the room or then landing someplace else and spread out maybe it's like uh, a physical manifestation of data moving around on the web but these are cables and they're all doing something different and it looks like nuts and then in that space, at least at that time, that first time, there's a pyramid made out of white marble that's taking up a whole lot of room. And this these huge white marble slabs, they're not lined up in any way that makes sense. So it very much looks like a sculptural piece, also like the pyramids, but whacked, like Dada pyramids, and really pure white. Okay, what's that? <laughs> well, Those marble slabs were for some other experiment and were being thrown out, but one way CERN works is that people are always paying attention with the many, many, the hundreds of experiments going on. Many of them have nothing directly to do with the main Large Large Hadron Collider. They're always like basically looking at the dump (laughs) and, oh, can we use that? Oh, that's like a Trenkov radiation detector
0: thing. Like they'll save old things and then reuse them, and then they'll keep this Well, no,
1: it's like the, whoever's running this particular experiment is paying attention to what's getting thrown out. It's not well-coordinated. It's like it's, you tune in. There are people from all over the world working there on all of these different projects, and you could luck out, like going to the junk store when some enormous treasure arrives, and and they let you have it. So that white pyramid happened to be a, a radiation shield for a very, very tiny little space in the middle of it. And I believe uh, Michael Dozer said that it was the only live radiation setup in the whole of CERN. And then, in fact, the first thing you had to do after we got over, the engineers didn't do anything, was show us this big red button. If there was radiation detected, That's got to be pushed, and everything goes into lockdown, and we had to do whatever we had to do. So it's just heavenly to look at this, and to hear how those white marble things got in there. It's just heavenly.
0: Yeah.
1: So and that you and to think oh all these physicists, and that's what they are, (laughs) are using their soldering irons to fix little things or to uh, make a new little thing. It's just extraordinary. Now, what happened many times was that the the different science people would be saying, "We we have a lot in common. Now, maybe the particular people, the organizers of these residencies put us in touch with, were more apt to have the feeling we have something in common with artists. And what happened for me over the course of these three years of encounters was, yes, I s- felt that, and very much still. But then a bigger thing came to me, which was, you have a goal. You have a, you are goal-based knowledge builders. But in the arts, that's not the case. At least it's certainly not for me, and I would think for many artists. It's not, you are proving, you're looking for proofs. I'm not looking for proof. I'm looking for a space. And sometimes
0: we disrupt proofs. Oh, And yeah. other times we we might look for a proof over here and disrupt a proof over there. Yeah. Uh, it's a little more. It's a
1: disturbance. F- you make a disturbance. Yeah. So from the beginning, when I started working in media or fil- film at the time, so it's in the 70s, and what we call theory was more and more becoming a kind of presence at art schools or within the discourse of art. It got hugely bigger, but um, it wasn't something I particularly trusted at the time. And then I did end up teaching for almost 30 years in a theory department <laughs> at Brown as practice. It was practice. So we had sort of a theory practice program. I don't really want to go off there too far, but why am I saying that? It's just the, well, I mean, this,
0: this idea that... There's a similarity to the way that theoretical physicists and artists are working, but they're going for proofs. We okay, yeah. are doing something else. Okay, but also in respect yeah. to then
1: your comment, I was taking from what you said to say disruption. Yeah, I, think I said that. So, all right, I was starting to put too many things on the plate all at once. I'll try to say them more separately. So it was once I started working in media and turned my back like in a day, painting which I deeply loved and I stopped the painting business I met somebody who already knew how to run a camera in art school and we started talking he was a sculptor but he was starting to feel more and more drawn to film that's Desmond Horsfield and I already knew a lot about experimental film from the time I was a teenager I happened to see stuff and the local Unitarian Church the minister was interested who brought people oh, like Ginsburg cool. and like Sunday afternoons at the Unitarian Church. I didn't belong to the church, it's just that's where the cool people went. That's cool. And there was very cool stuff. In Schenectady, New York. A horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so miserable. But I knew when I started to work with film that instead of this path and paint of follow the truth of it of a process. It would, go, it would lead to nothing. To follow the, the path I was following would only end up with me in an empty white room with nothing on the canvas. I mean literally, that's, that's what I thought was the case. And to work with time in the world, there would be no end. It was like in a
0: day. It turned. Just so you had this moment where everything yeah, shifted. There's
1: no end. It's the whole world and everything Almost like a calling or something, on like a lightning yeah. bolt moment. Yeah. Like yeah. And so and that I still believe. So I guess I'll skip over my attack on cultural theory.
0: <laughs> I do trust <laughs> those lightning bolt moments. Oh, yes. And y- they don't happen. They're very rare. And usually when they happen, there's no going back. You or, they, no. That's my experience, yeah. or,
1: or you find out yeah. later that there was no going back which yeah. is a part of what was amazing for me at MIT that I'm facing this over 40 years and somehow okay, <laughs> in that first piece extracts is the last piece, Hemlock Handmade that they are somehow they belong to each
0: other yeah.
1: and, and then true. He, the Hemlock Handmade puts his arms it's only 5 minutes long It will become one part of a much longer and bigger, like, this is Peggy and Fred in Hell now type of project. And I have a huge archive that I've gathered myself, filming other archival historical material, which is in Hemlock Handmade, by the way. But all that stuff fits together. That's in Hemlock Handmade. And the generative process that led to making that in a few minutes, which I did, is years. Yeah. So, Including have, having the footage that I had, but it's, it's a year, years of uh, thinking that you haven't placed yet, but then it circumstances push it. Mm-hmm. I am super dependent on Brinks. It's very hard for me, it was hard for me in school to not be desperately to the last minute before the math test tomorrow because that's when my brain can really absorb everything, like fast.
0: I, I work well with deadlines, too. Yeah. I, they, that, ha- they push. I had a similar experience with the work yeah. it, that I showed and, um, during the big sleep.
1: Here's the great thing that happened yeah. the week leading up to making that little piece. It's a small piece, but it's a perfect piece for that show. Going back to you saying something about things ha- let's say in arts there there might be two we could say general modes for the mit show um, which is like a mini retrospective Uh, it's covering a lot of work and pretty much everything had to be rebuilt from scratch so i spent so much time on that i mean i had to go back and find on old firewire drives the original film transfers to really make it look good because the stuff I had made, in some cases the master, was a DVD. Really a lot of work went into it. And hemlocks hanging over me. So a couple great things happened. One, about a week before (laughs) opening my main drive where I had put all of this tree stuff and these experiments that took you know, overnight and many nights to render. It was so complicated. Of this movement, this complexity that I had been building, I messed up the drive. I mean, I lost the drive.
0: You really lost it?
1: Uh, uh, well, yeah. I, it, it, I was try- doing a routine maintenance on the drive that I would do all the time with things. This time it went offline for this little maintenance process so if like repair permissions sort of thing. It didn't come back on and it wasn't coming back on and that was fantastic because <laughs> I just there like I had made myself I don't know at least a hundred roads I could have followed now I didn't have that and the few things that I picked out as maybe this is mo- more of the thing I happened to have copied there were only a few
0: maybe three so it was like one of those devastating moments that. That happens a time. Up, yeah, that wound up um, filtering out. Everything. So much. Which maybe could have led you to not figure it out or something, because it would have been too uh, open too a much long time. material,
1: yeah. Yeah. So that. So it happens late at night. Yeah. You know, like 1 a.m. This happens. And then in the next hour, I made most of the piece. And uh, it was just cut to the quick, cut to the quick. And so that was great after it was like, I'm going to kill myself right now. Yeah. And I've been there before. And you are going to kill yourself. It is the agony and ecstasy moment thing. So I cut to the quick. Well, the other factor was that I (laughs) there are two screens to that piece, right? There are two monitors running. It's a diptych that Hemlock Handmade, and I had planned on having this tree-scrolling complexity bubble chambery thing moving constantly, well, we got delayed in Michigan on our trip a month ago heading back because there was a gale, and trees were down, huge trees were down all over (laughs) the place, and we're uh, on the lake, on Lake Huron, it's a mess, we can't leave, So when it's getting kind of critical, I gotta get home for the show. I just went out and started filming the lake, which had been turquoise and very calm and beautiful the day before, and now had surf-type waves, Mm -hmm. and is very gray, and not particularly raining, but wicked winds. And I'm just, I set my (laughs) camera up, I made sure my camera's okay, and then I just tried to figure out how do I record that thing that's going on right there in front of me, so you can feel it some other way. Like, It's not a landscape. If you're going to film surfers or you're going to film a storm on water, you're going to make a landscape orientation, generally. And then it gets naturalized into whatever story you're telling, your documentary or your photograph. So I kept looking, looking with the camera on its side, which is something I often do. And I found these kind of ideal zoom-in spots where this tremendous force and turbulence could be felt, but it was detached from the orientation of gravity and making it more vivid in terms of force. And I filmed for about 45 minutes, and I, I really do feel I could have died then. Nobody knew I was doing this, um, so I was really next to the lake alone in high winds, using all of the strength of my body to hold the camera tripod down so it didn't tip and the shots would be stationary. So now this is in my lap. And I started doing some of the same kind of processing, but I don't have to create this fo- this artificial movement up, which was a, a essentially kind of animation process. I started to bury the image that was already buried in the way I'd framed it with uh, doing stuff to it and and creating enough layers that that direction of the force becomes more ambiguous and what happens is it starts to look like bark that's slipping it's like writhing and the colors that i just didn't do like because i'm trying to make anything look like bark but it's what came out all of a sudden i'm looking at bark and the whole thing is there and then I wanted to be dealing with questions around flow anyway, in relation to, ultimately, I'll proceed, I mean, stuff around aerodynamics, and then, I won't go into it, but a lot of different reasons for having an interest in flow studies, like mechanical engineering, aspects of flow studies, and then things, my dad had mentioned, like, uh, about, my dad was very unimpressed with chaos theory, because he said, <laughs> well, engineers have been dealing with chaos theory from the beginning. It it has to do with how liquid would move through a pipe, for instance. It's the same thing. So, my dad was way on the applied side, mm-hmm. like me. And there it was. I have my tree. It's water. <laughs> it flows in no particular direction. There's tremendous force. There's it's inexplicable. It you it takes a while to see that maybe it has anything to do with water, but it has to do a lot with movement. And then it's also hard to say it's from the real or it's entirely constructed. And that's going to be it had by everything. itself.
0: It, had, it was all there it was all in there. this sort of, because you couldn't get back and everything you were thinking about and yeah. trying to touch on kind of appeared right there and yeah. then in that moment.
1: yeah. And, uh, uh. and so, you know, this, this is a little off to the side, or maybe a lot, but something about making things, let's say as an artist, or maybe doing research and developing devices and stuff in science, physics. At dinner the night of the opening, oh, see, I just had one of my moments of I want to say this, mm-hmm. and I digressed too many times. So, what was it? Oh, well. <laughs> the subject of a complete work, a finished work, came up. Natalie said something. I, know, I really feel I drove her crazy because I planned all along when I saw what was happening. That I knew I had to rebuild every single work except the most recent, which are just straight out of high-end digital cameras, did stuff, fine, no problem. It's like plug-and-play with those, but almost everything else. And there was a moment where I just thought, I can't say anymore to people, that's not right. I'm fixing it, because everyone's too nervous. I just know I just, I'm going to show up later. <laughs> I'm going to hope the main technical person is willing to walk around with me and stick in these thumb drives. Uh, that maybe they look almost the same, but they're really not almost the same. So she actually announces at dinner that she, she's, she says, well, of course, all of those thumb drives you were going to sneak in. I said, what? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't say that to anybody. What, nobody knows. She said, oh, I mean, it was obviously. That was fun. <laughs> I said, just thought she hated me the whole time. But she's just more structured than I am. And we yeah, just at some
0: point they have to be like, we're going with what we got. Yeah, I was you not going to give up. Continuously change it. I was not giving he'll up. You'll probably still go back at the end and sneak in we'll the <laughs> Let's not announce that, but yeah, I guess so. yeah, yes. I hope you do.
1: Oh yes. Just so one. yeah, so the subject of works in art being finished came up, and it was really interesting at our little table, as we were sitting with one of the trustees and. it was a small dinner party, but there were 40 people, but we all had our kind of assigned seats. And her dear friend had come up from New York and her friend is very involved in theater. And so this subject of work that's finished, but actually it's not, came up. So there's the famous story of, uh, they started talking about known events, like a a painter going into a show and taking the painting down and away to fix it up some more and bring it back. But the one that's probably the most famous one in painting, which I didn't know about, was Turner arriving at something like this, like a show or in somebody's house with his work, wherever it was, and he's got the right red paint and the brush, and he just goes over and does his thing, and then it's done. And knew I didn't know that it wasn't done, and then he knew it wasn't done. So, hello, museums. And hello publishing too. Many authors or some authors have rewritten or greatly changed their books that then are published again. They like can reissue, republished another date, and they really have made changes. So this is a little going off in a different direction, but it is about
0: well, there's the a, life. And even in of the film art. the director's cuts now. Yeah. Like because of Richard. streaming the director can rework and do a director's cut now. Yeah. You can't really do that in theaters, but because of streaming...
1: Well, you uh, sure can do it in theaters. You can, but more that's and That's what more the Worcester now, Group does yeah. every night.
0: Okay. They change what they're doing all the
1: time. I worked with them, and that's... They yeah. like guard for about four years, and it was so perfect to work with them because... They just kept well, re-editing it and re-editing it and re-editing no. it. Well, I don't want to give yeah, their, their to get, trade secrets yeah, away, but, but, but everybody knows yeah. that any one piece, you can go back a week later, and there are very significant changes, because Liz LeCompte, she's making the work as it goes, and it is a point where it becomes public, and there's an audience. Doesn't mean it stops, because there's more all the time that's added in, taken away, and this was very close to home, in her case it's not seen as a problem in general it is a, like a bone i would pick that immediate especially maybe in media especially there was. it took a long time for a place like the whitney to show any of the episodes of peggy and fred i was told it's an unfinished work a museum can't do that well when you die then it's you're not going to change it. So that's a good
0: defining moment. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's when you know something's finished, right?
1: <laughs> In all likelihood. Or let's see what curators do with it. Yeah, they can change Cause they it. can. it can be changed. This isn't very interesting, mm. this topic. But no, is, but tie it it's back critical. together. There's
0: something you were going to say before. I kind of steered it. We kind of got off on a tangent. Oh, no, I went off on a tangent. Yeah, that's okay. That's what we do. Well, it was um, well, it's really just... Just about now and where we're at, I think that's what you were talking about. Well,
1: I do. Let's say going back to money.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Money's a problem in relation to art. I don't know how long that has been the case. It's a huge problem now. Like, money's a problem.
0: After this, I want to talk to you about something. When we shut this off, I want to talk to you about Because I've been thinking about this. Yeah. Solving this problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've been working on it for a year. With oh. a computer scientist.
1: Well, there's this moment, yeah. this NFT moment, which
0: will work is working
1: for some people. Whatever any of us think of it, I don't know yet. I, mean, I haven't faced.
0: That the thing time. about the NFT is it's a new space where you can sell your work, but again, it's doesn't really solve the problem because it's still, in the end, you still have to hope. The work sells, and if you're already famous, yeah, you could sell anything, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> it, so, it still winds up being a kind of Etsy store for artists. Like, oh. it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, it gives more opportunity for artists to sell without a middleman, or yeah. a middle person, or whatever. But I it isn't necessarily <laughs> going to solve the problem of how we survive and focus yeah. on creativity. Yeah, it could. I don't know. It could.
1: I'm sounding dubious, not because I... uh,
0: We don't even have to get into it now, but... Yeah. Yeah, but like... No, we don't... It could be good... If people know your work and you can just create an NFT and it creates an authentic... Basically, you could take a video and make an NFT. Make additions and I have sell them.
1: Hundreds of yeah. thousands.
0: and you can sell them. <laughs> the thing is, some famous YouTuber or something can like make an NFT of their something and sell like five million dollars in like a second. You see what I mean? It doesn't necessarily solve the problem for artists. It's speculation. Yeah.
1: And yeah, I have well yeah. one good friend and another. Yeah. Uh, she and her husband started collecting computer art to not stuff digital. It's actually things that early on computers were being used to make work. And they have probably the largest collection of computer-based art in the world, but certainly in America. So now people are becoming more aware of it. And it's fabulous. A lot of it's, it, it, some of it's like, take Etch-a-Sketch, which was, this, maybe it's still around, but this fun little box yeah. you can make drawings with. but Make that ten thousand more times more interesting and big and with color and that's, that's cool. a that's a direction. Oh, yeah. But there are uh, many other directions, and they own um, the first piece that's thought to have been made that I think was in the fifties. So they uh, so she's an artist also and but also has this kind of math aptitude. So she's become very involved in an interesting way with developing material specifically out of her body of work. That's geared that direction, and she'll yeah. she's she'll be a person. She is a person who can make it an interesting, healthy space.
0: Yeah.
1: But there will then be the. It's just that there will I be think other kind of
0: entrepreneurs and then yeah. wizards. With but kids. regardless of like the marketplace of NFTs, yeah. I think it's important, in the sense of, with say with your work, to have that authenticity. On the blockchain, regardless if you ever sell it, it's important to have that. It would be really hard to do that to take your entire body of work and. But it w- imagine how good it would be as an archive. Nobody could ever um, question it.
1: There is a thing you I'd know? like to do.
0: Yeah. Because as
1: I've been restoring things. Yeah. Uh, oh, I touched that. Sorry. It's oh, okay. As I've been restoring yeah. things, there's so many at least for me, very precious moments that I never did use from Peggy and Fred. I I did pull a few kind of gift moments, and I thought, yeah, if I was doing this, like a half a sentence or a full sentence and this particular gesture, I love looking at it. Tom and I use language that came up from the filming. It's just part of our personal home linguistic resources, uh, like Fred at some point saying, look, Peggy, solid wood. It's solid wood. So all the time we're saying, it's solid wood, Leslie. Or or, I need a bell pepper, kid. I need a bell pepper. And then you're in this black space, and there's just one little white table. There are no bell peppers in sight. It's like a little story. It takes seven seconds. I love that. So I would have a good time mining Uh, raw
0: material and what's great is that right now all of this stuff exists on hard drives and discs and Mm. firewire drives and all these things or you show it once every so many (laughs) years in a gallery space and the fact that you could take all of that and put it in the cloud on a blockchain that nobody can mess with ever how amazing is that it as an archive I think as artists this is so appealing regardless of the buying and selling aspect of uh, yeah. just the fact that you can put it there and it, and now There's it's, some, it's lot, safe somehow it's safe and it's not safe on our hard drives you know oh And, yeah. and <laughs> you can't share it yeah and the gallery system is only available for a very few right. amount of creative projects and right. even an artist their whole body of work only gets defined to a few works you know that's right. Yeah. And I
1: don't know enough to yeah. respond very much.
0: I don't either, but I've been trying to tackle all this over the last year. What I did was I, again, this is, we don't have to include this, but I'll tell you after. Why don't, okay, yeah. Is there anything you know else what? you want to well, re- say? Okay, Because so. this is our one opportunity. We might not get this again. Is there anything else no, you want to Well, we might. We, there's a good chance we will. We can talk again.
1: Well, say, so i say, if we're trying to reach a sort of summary point yeah. um, for this conversation, i will say I have tremendous faith in art. Not all artists by any means, or not probably even most of what goes on in what we call art world, but I have like, a deep, deep faith in art. And or this is a non sequitur, but something I did want to say, What is a a big thing I learned at MIT? This is really non sequitur. I think I said it to you already. I'm not afraid to be afraid. When you were talking, going back to the beginning, you're talking about me just pushing and then pushing more, which is what seems like a kind of extreme. And of course, to me, it doesn't feel that way. What I have to feel is I've reached Well, there is even a kind of blister ecstasy aspect to it, but, uh, and you don't know when it's gonna happen, but just that I have to be in a place I didn't know, but I did know. But now it's manifest in the peace itself. It's manifest in the peace itself. It's the thing I needed. It's conscious and pre-conscious and subconscious, and finally the thing that is the art that goes away from me, that's there, Uh, It is the manifestation of all of that stuff. And for me, that somehow, because I wasn't trying to be a player or sell, I was just so serious about the work, and I had the right few people around me, and I had an okay job that let me not work too hard. And stimulation from younger people as a professor, that helped a little bit. I think I helped them way more, but (laughs) it helped a little. Yeah, I would say, for me, art is in that manifestation of a kind of really deep, complex type of thought process, Because I do think of it as thought. It is a manifestation that, that could be passed along. I think the reason a lot of my work has held up over years, because that's something people are starting to say to me a lot. Now that I'm so old, and I am, it seems so fresh, it just... Well, that's part of, partly because I wasn't in dialogue, but also because there's something like it's life. It's like it's a thing that has its own life. And, and there wasn't an agenda. It wasn't. As soon as I'm not in dialogue, like, I'm in painting dialogue. I was never in experimental film dialogue. Zero. Want the world to know. Zero. It helped me to know extraordinary early works, especially of the American avant-garde filmmakers, like, like uh, or experimental maker, filmmakers like Hollis Frampton, Paul Schartz. Also, earlier, the Surrealists and Dadaists. That stuff all helped. But then I just think, fine, that helps. That's like a base, and then you go.
0: Kind of foundation,
1: yeah. Well, it just, it like but they template. already took care of it. Yeah. They took care of it. Why would I identify, Do I again? why, uh, I mean, that was a crippling thing in American experimental film, that uh, there was a, an instant canon, and it's those guys really made it happen. They only let a few people in, there's a story about that I won't share. Yeah. It's, it's not an, uh, not a broad enough interest, but it's amazing about like the the, the little t- the little mountain that they were clawing their way up, which was across each other's bodies in the 60s and 70s. So, fine, you did that, so I don't need to, and why would anyone else, So, uh, but it, yeah, it's the bottom line. It's a base that I admire enormously and needed. To experience and did. Other than that, I do not relate to experimental film, period. So I'm just, a, I just make, I'm an artist. And, and then the, the problem of spaces to view, now, like going into MIT or going to the art sh- shows in Europe, the speed exhibitions. If that stuff's, I just think if the show actually is very good and you're not seeing five things that day, or you're with somebody who can see it and they're slowing you down. I did have a friend like that. When I did do the whole Soho trip all the time, and you go, oh, 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 okay, 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 no, no, not interesting, no, If he came, he could just enchant the room. And through his eyes, then you saw. I know what I want to say. All of the work I've done that's for gallery environments, which I call ambient. It is meant to grow over time. I mean, in the room. I don't mean in ten years. I mean, and it was work. It, it has been happening. The first uh, piece I made with James, when it was first shown at Rodeo Gallery in London, people would stay just twenty minutes long. They realize that they'd just watched it three times so they'd be in there an hour like how what does that happen in the gallery and they're sitting on the floor in that case and because i don't know how but how i'm doing it but i am doing this thing i know a lot about narrative now <laughs> that just osmosis came in from basically teaching because I had to teach narrative, and I didn't want to know too much. I wanted to find it out myself, but I still had to throw things their way, and they all knew much more about it than I did. But I do know about the kind of engagement that is required of or what narrative. Narrative produces a kind of engagement. So I'll say I have an interest in producing a kind of engagement, and it's been really amazing for me to make works that are, really just for the ambient environment. If you're at home and you're looking on your computer, it's not going to happen. And it's not about spectacle either. It's about the thing being engaging enough, strong enough, in some way that you hesitate and you want to hang around. And then there are no edges to it. So, so far it seems to mostly have been the case, especially in the last few years, where maybe I'm presenting stuff that's fairly dense, con- or really dense content wise, the hemlock handmade has a deceptive simplicity to it. That's also why I'm so happy it's there in that context. Because it's, yeah, it is that deceptive simplicity that attaches to other things around it. But I don't put an edge, so something like Cut from Liquid to Snake. Which includes um, so much much actually a, a variation on, of the image, and then that other the voice also uh, it's displaced elsewhere. But in it, yeah, sorry, I'm making a mush a mush of that. It happened for me too. That thing's about 20 minutes. When it cycles through to the next 20 minutes, the first time you see. You're watching the 20 minutes it's linear if you're in a space where it's not stopping and starting and there's no announcement and you just realize oh i think i might maybe you think i might have saw that it looks like it's a kind of about histories until the second time around and then it's about the present it's incredible for me to have that as it was a kind of like a revelation it actually wasn't something I anticipated. It's something I noticed. And so that helps me go forward. So that I want mostly these most recent pieces are really dense referentially, maybe to the point in something like ground that there is virtually nothing there because there's such density. So the way I produce that image this is a string shaped like a string pattern of an actual figure moving, but then the groundedness of the voice itself, what that's saying, and the disparity between the austerity and abstraction of the image which still attaches to a reference in the world of possibly exactly what it was, a guy walking along, talking, and it actually is that, but then the fullness of, of the voice whether you understand much or any, you have to understand a lot. It goes back also to gesture. And this is the physicist, researcher, person who's describing some things that any physics student would know about. Doesn't matter that you or I don't know much, but he's also saying, like, suddenly, and when do those ideas come? The darkest moment in the middle of the night. And you say, yeah. Yeah, an artist, I just got goosebumps saying that, (laughs) actually. Yes, I know what you're talking about, and it's true. And then if you watch that, like, you let that 10 minutes go by, you don't see the edge, and you're just there. Your attention's going to shift around. You're going to try to penetrate the space more, or not. And it doesn't matter which happens, and it can come and go. I love that piece. And mm-hmm. I'm so happy with
0: it. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I think that was enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. The <laughs> you know, it's amazing. I've gotten to spend a lot of time with So So Much. It was in the book. Yeah. It was at the Whitney, where you had to sit down in the theater and watch it from beginning to end. <laughs> it was at the big sleep looping. Yeah. And I was there for six weeks watching <laughs> it loop, maybe Two months. Yeah, I saw it on the. um, Really, with everything you just said, I just think that consciousness is so much more than we. We're at the very beginning of even understanding what consciousness is. Yeah. Of starting to just research it. Yeah. And I think artists have planted themselves right in that research from the beginning. Yeah. We work with consciousness. It's a language to try to grasp even a little sliver of it. It's so, think of everything you just talked about for 20 minutes. How complex and nuanced of what you're trying to get at. Anyway, see it's... Because
1: I do now remember the other thing I wanted to say that is also a kind of summary. Yes, I agree with what you're saying. I also wonder when that became the case. It's not necessarily the case of the history of art that this process that can be going on today, and maybe has for quite a while, and will probably continue and escalate, of what the artist can be recognizing, sharing, and contributing to kind of healing and growth and movement, and maybe isn't so much the case of 1900.
0: Right, because they're well, they were still looking at in art, art art in their bubble of knowledge was a different bubble of knowledge that we have now so yeah but the drive maybe was similar i don't know but i'm not sure I'm
1: not, i am not sure yeah. and over the course of the history probably not, of art probably not. and back to ancient yeah. art making people who weren't and i mean even like in greece <laughs> like if you were able to make these fantastic sculptures it was a job it wasn't necessarily honored above a lot of other things. But what I wanted to say is that I think for some time that one thing going on within the arts is that stuff that some people are doing that can't operate anyplace else and may include scientific elements, for instance, or various psychological, manipulative, whatever, storytelling, or wanting to help the world or wanting to attack what's going on. All of that stuff that there is a kind of work occurring that simply can't function anyplace else and gets put into the art category and yeah, now this is especially true
0: yeah, um, really cool. but
1: there are some obvious people like someone like like Natalie Jeremijenko, who's an artist all the way and also okay. a scientist so the the science art thing there's going to be a lot of junk Coming out of that, because there's a there's a trend, and then there's going to be. And I don't put myself in that category of like uh, Natalie, because I'm not a scientist in any way. So I have a different kind of fascination.
0: I'm more like you. I like to have dialogue with scientists, but I'm doing something else. Yeah. So, so it's a
1: different. But but the point is, things that exist can exist in a cultural milieu don't have any other, have a direct application or fu- like functional usefulness. This may happen more and more. Maybe it's I mean, it's been happening for a while. And I do have a joke about it. Yeah, what's the joke?
0: <laughs> Let's end in. with the joke.
1: <laughs> All right, So when I was in an undergraduate college student. I don't know if this was just a joke or actually almost like really actually a policy. So it was that um, at this particular school, if you changed your concentration or major three times, you automatically became a philosophy major. (laughs) (laughs) So I just figured that's part of what's going on in this world today with art. There are things happening. That's really
0: funny. (laughs) Yeah, if you you change uh, your context too much, you're put into the artist category.
1: (laughs) or you don't fit any place. Yeah,
0: you don't fit any place.
1: It doesn't no. exactly fit. Oh, Tom, Tom. What? Sorry, sweetie. What? Okay. I ca- Oh, Kelly Dobson. Another mm-hmm. amazing person. Okay, you got, it. got it, Tom. Kelly <laughs> Dobson like Natalie Jermjenko. Isn't she's an artist and she worked with you know engineers and tech people to build her works at her early practice had to do with kind of a changing, working on the relationship between us and machines, and so a, a famous early piece is actually working with a kitchen blender, okay. where she retools the blender so that the way you turn it on and off and change the speed is through your voice. And she would train people; you had to imitate the sound, so you would like.
0: Rah, rah like <laughs> and that would turn it on
1: that would make it run yeah. it would make it would turn it on make the speed by imitating the voice I'm not in touch with her enough now but she can she when I had known her more um, a few years ago she was coming into our department at Brown but she kind of ran off to Google took care took her for a couple of years I don't know what she's doing now but she had oriented herself around the notion of care. And she, uh, she talked about, when she was beginning that project, she went into a drugstore and she spent a long, long time and looked at everything and made a record of how many times the word care showed up in the whole drugstore, which was probably 10,000 or like a ton of times. And she makes, she has been making devices that produce care situations some of which have been adopted in hospitals helping preemies it's not manufacturing it's not for money but it is insight that she had so with preemies for instance that the mother's heartbeat is can be present with the mother not touching her outside or the breath the movement of the lungs that these can be physically orally and physically manifest inside the incubator um, is something she had been oh, developing cool. when I last oh. was around her, and and that is an example.
0: Yeah. I think that's a
1: really hardcore concrete yeah. example yeah. of somebody whose interest isn't like I want a patent. I want to do this, and it and hopefully it's something that would spread and be adopted, and probably it will.
0: Yeah.
1: And Natalie Jermajenko in her like her famous project with teaching engineering students at Yale. I and mean, she's teaching in the engineering department as an artist and coming up with a, this project for going to toxic waste sites like the, the what do they call the major sites, like Love Canal. I can't remember right now. So she gets a Japanese company making robot dogs. Each dog really costs 50,000 to make. Or it's very expensive, but they're selling them for much less. And they're donated to Yale's uh, engineering class through her efforts. And then the people in that class are each dealing with sensors for tracking certain kinds of pollutants. And then the dogs themselves are also being, they form a network of communication between each other. So if they're finding this bad thing over here, but it's actually for some other dog over there. They're in touch, mm-hmm. so the dog moves. And then she she was coming up with data that was way beyond what the government was coming up with. Mm-hmm. It was more specific and deeper. And then she also would call the news, local news station to come over and they'd do something like have an air balloon rising with a camera that's watching the dogs come out of the truck and start to move around and then report back to base. Well, <laughs> what is that? You know? So it isn't something that's been adopted to check out. <laughs> she made it have, she gets it on the news. That's an interesting <coughs> component. She's helping engineering students who couldn't think a different way about what they do,
0: yeah. what they need
1: to do. She's introducing this other thing. It's like kind of playful.
0: I have a feeling that. I don't know, I feel like as we progress technologically, I think art is actually, an art thinking is going to become more and more important. I have no evidence behind that, but I feel it. And the complexity, we don't know, even in technology and business, I think it would be really wise. This is like a challenge <laughs> I put to companies that every company should have an artist in residency.
1: It is happening. At the Jet Propulsion Lab, there's a, um, so where the Mars Rover is built, and that's connected to Caltech. There's like one office we visited, the only interesting office to me, really, and it's got a bunch of artists in it. See, that's and they're cool. working on stuff that's adopted, like, like the woman we talk to the most. Was a textile um, person, and she had an idea about different ways gloves that the astronauts would be wearing for actual like go go on to the land of moon, like get out and yeah. be on moon. Very different possibilities in the design <coughs> that did all sorts of things, including making the thing more comfortable, yeah, but also more functional. So. There's a, there are people who um, are making, propose, as artists, and maybe you just have to be kind of around there to know that it's possible to do this. James Cameron, not yeah. my favorite person, he spends tons of, he, there's a big link between Jet Propulsion Lab and James Cameron. And the, it is a knowledge connection. Yeah. It's not just him going and looking this for cool images. No. There's actually a knowledge connection.
0: Because sometimes the solution is not an engineer solution, you know what I mean? Sometimes yeah, you lot. need an artist solution,
1: uh, you know? or, or let that be a or, part of it, that, yeah.
0: that, like, so it is. And I feel like, like you said, it's going to happen more and more. I it's think. hard, because everything is so monetized, it's hard to understand the artist's role, in a way, or the artist's place.
1: Well, probably, oh, yeah. mostly, what will happen is it could happen. Yeah. And mostly, the artist's mind will end up being just used. I mean, it's not going to, I don't believe, it's going to feed back into art stuff, making art. Well, I'm saying that, but then I just spent this time. But I wasn't, neither of those settings were particularly about how will the presence of those artists help anything. But at Caltech, there is. Now I think there's more than one artist working there. The same fund that got me there it was the beginning of the program. I think that's program. really cool. So there's one artist more of that. who's been there a long time. Yeah. Her name Mom. is uh, Hillary Muskin, and she works. I think there's a team of three, where there's that's it's like her artist, this person, software or computer person, and this person, mechanical engineer, something like that. And they will help people doing a research project. They have to accept the p- this group is mm-hmm. funded, and they have to accept the project that they'll take on to help advance the research. So often it will have, with, for instance, to do with visualization of something, including flow studies. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, the research done with sand, is the project she was showing me, and compression the film stuff that you see, the archival stuff you see, in Hemlock Handmade, those are all flow studies, and all of what, all of the rocks, that's all sand. Now, the flow studies involving liquids moving over solids, it's all digital. There's literally a company in France that makes the digital sand, and each piece is different, and it, it's it, it's just a computer thing. It's a mm-hmm. data construct. And it costs a lot, like I need 10,000 pieces of sand. And it costs a lot of money and you get those and then you're gonna see what happens with compression on this cup of sand and when it changes, when the structure and composition of the whole situation breaks or, or changes. Mm-hmm. So they produced a visualizing aspect to that. What you see in Hamlet Handmade those images are the research images it's not a record it's not oh we're documenting what Mm -hmm. we did no they make the experiment and like with the bubble chamber photographs the evaluation is in the rec the film record got it right so this stuff is moving at this speed with this liquid being shot through at this speed that's that sort of thing here's our record We have to have a record, and that's what we look at. Now, at is Solid Digital, you know, their claim, many uphold their claim of beginning the World Wide Web, and they send, at least when I was there, not long ago, every day they're sent, shooting out data to 150,000 computers around the world. Every day, with billions of things happening. Every day. That's how much they need for the processing of the data. And before, it was actually photographed by 70 millimeter cameras that ran at a tremendous speed that were made specially for these, uh, recording these particle collisions in a, a kind of liquid where, trace, where trails were left. Not You don't see the particles, just the trails. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is an example. It's a very concrete example
0: yeah. of
1: three different kinds of thinking people, forming a team in a scientific research context to
0: help
1: progress the work.
0: I want to see more of this. Yeah. I think it's very cool. All right, I'm going to turn this off. That's it. That concludes Episode 6 of the Vector Interview Podcast. I want to thank Leslie Thornton for participating in the project. It was truly an honor to speak with her. For more information about the exhibition at the List Visual Arts Center, go to listart.mit.edu/slash exhibitions. For information about our current and future projects, go to vector.bz. And you can find us on Instagram at 3 underscores vector3 underscores. I am Peter Gregorio. You can find me on Instagram at peter underscore Gregorio. Javier Barrios can be found at JavierBarrios.com All of the music was generously provided by the amazing Liz Cossack You can find her and check out her projects at Zardcom.com The title drops were provided by my comrade in Absurdity the German artist Sophie Lindner And I want to thank our new editor Michael Sokol And a big thank you to our producer and editor Todd Tracy I will leave you with this quote from Leslie Thornton. It is probably the case that thought is largely structured like language, but there is a kind of thinking outside of language that can surface sometimes, especially in art making, probably in a lot of other areas as well. Intangible, erotic, intuitive, pre-verbal, but precise. Those moments are extremely pleasurable, frightening, or stimulating. Thank you for listening to Vector Interview.